What's going on, everybody? I'm Mara. And I'm Tez. And welcome to our very special Juneteenth episode of Sisters Who Kill. If this is your very first time hearing our voice, welcome, welcome. If this is not your first time, welcome back. Hey, girl, what's going on? Each year for Juneteenth over here at Sisters Who Kill, we do a really special episode. Last year, we covered Angela Davis. That one was really fun. And the year before, we covered Asada Shakur. Tazzy, you chose Angela Davis, and I chose Asada Shakur. Mm -hmm. And these are like killer women in history. If you do not know about these women, after you listen to this episode, go and listen to our covering of those for the past two Juneteenths. I promise you will not be disappointed. And the feedback we got from that was really overwhelming and we loved it. And we were like, okay, this year we have to do something really special. And so we did. This year we decided that we were going to bring together 11 different black podcasters to tell you some amazing stories. But to kick us off... What is Juneteenth? Juneteenth became a national holiday in 2021, and the celebration originated in Galveston, Texas. Now, here's your down and dirty history. The Civil War, right? A fight between the Union Army, the Northern States, and the Confederacy, the Southern States. Many will say that the main cause for this war was slavery. Well, it's not that simple. It was also about... The state's rights and Western expansion. The South is like, listen, we're making all this money. We've got the land, the crops, the cotton, the tobacco. We have the big farms. But now America's moving west, and all these abolitionists from up north are trying to tell us how to run things down here, and we're not having that, okay? So this led to the most expensive and deadly war on American soil. So Abraham Lincoln, he was the president, and he put out the Emancipation Proclamation. And he did that on January 1st, 1863. Now, in this thing, he the, remember the Civil War is still going on at this time. And during this, he writes that all of the rebel states in captured people will be free. But the Confederacy is like, what are you even talking about? We're at war right now. Like, what are you talking? You don't control us. And what about the slaves that y'all got up, got up north? Anyway. So the war is coming to an end. The 13th Amendment is working its way through Congress, and it's passed on January 31st of 1865. Now, one, we've only got through Congress. Bill on Capitol Hill, keep up. But also, why would the Confederacy care what bill the Union has put on when they are at war? They are literally acting as two separate republics so right, what laws like, you pass we don't mean any we, we don't care anything about it the war ends on april 9th of 1865 and the 13th amendment goes through congress but it was not ratified until december 6th of 1865 so in the 13th amendment it says neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime whereof a party shall have been duly convicted shall exist in the united states or any place subject to their jurisdiction which pay close attention right because it doesn't say there's no slavery right only people who right. have not committed a crime come on somebody and jumping ahead in history, y'all already know, the chain gang. You would get fucking arrested and put in prison for years for loitering and during the, like, reconstruction period because guess who they needed to reconstruct things? Your black ass. Legal slavery. They still do it today. Still do it today. So here we are. The war has ended. Apparently the slaves are all supposed to be free, but, like, Texas at the time was just this very rural state. It was very much the wild, wild west. And in Galveston, Texas... Texas. And in Galveston, Texas, the Union Army was still doing their thing and the 
people that were enslaved, they, yeah, you may, even if you knew you were free, I feel like the process of just being like, all right, I'm leaving, no. So finally, the Union Army was able to give arms and resources to the folks in very rural Galveston, Texas, so that people that were enslaved could properly leave. And now it's a holiday. That part of Texas was such a remote part of the Confederacy. So the assistance from the Union Army did not come until June 19th, 1866, which now is called Juneteenth. And it was very much a local holiday, but it became a national holiday in 2021, like we said. And that's why we're here, folks. Now, on Sisters Who Kill, we have a running joke that Ancestry.com should be extremely discounted for black people because there's only a limit to how much history we can find, right? Right. But the beautiful thing about being black and coming from the sacred land is that the spirit of our ancestry runs through us. Their blood pumps in our veins and their stories are not written like you would think and in these other people's history, but still it sticks with us and we learn from it. Because if we don't, we're bound to repeat it, right? I feel like black podcasters have a duty to not only entertain, but to educate and tell our stories and our histories through our voices. I think that you're absolutely right, which is why I'm very excited about all the stories and all the podcasts that you are going to hear today. And with Sisters Who Kill, we're a true crime podcast. We find that when... We hear about women, especially women in the American judicial system. There is this very antiquated idea of who women are, what women can do. And I really don't even think that it's antiquated. I think it's just always been there, but it's just patriarchal standards. When we think about history and we think about revolts and people that have stood up and fought for our freedom throughout any time in any decade whatsoever, you hardly ever put women in that category. Our players this week are the slave owners, our quote-unquote victims. Don't know if I would call them that, but unnamed slaves, murderers, and accomplices. Sarah, Abigail, Lily, and Amber, our murderesses. So we're in Newton, Queens. It's 1707. There is a man, and in court records and all the historical evidence, they call this man Indian Sam, and a woman who in court records, her court records were actually hard to find. And any of the historical pieces of the historical articles about her would call her either the Negro wench or the Negro fiend. And they were enslaved by William Hallett III, his wife, and their five children. On January 27th, 1707, they were like tired of this shit they were tired of working for the family they were tired of being enslaved this is not the life that they wanted to live and they desired to get free so they went and they they went and they gathered some assistance from two other enslaved people on this farm next door they come and in the middle of the night they kill the entire family once that happened the two were captured pretty quickly afterwards and they were set to go to trial take that shit to trial after the trial the men were hung, and the unnamed woman, she was burned at the stake. Now, I'm sure you're wondering, why was she burned at the stake instead of hung like the rest of them? Well, it's very interesting, and it all has to do with patriarchy. 
So remember, at the time, it's 1707. The United States of America wasn't the United States of America. This was just a cluster of colonies under the monarch rule. And under British rule, a woman's husband or master is her natural lord. So if you kill your husband or your master, it's almost as if you killed the monarchy. Very umbrella system, if you watch the Duggars, which is a crime against your natural lord. And if you do a crime against your natural lord, then you're doing a crime against the state and a, cr- a crime against her majesty. That's treason. And the punishment for treason is to be burned at the stake. This was a huge deal in New York at the time. And many people had very different views on this and their views on slavery in general were being questioned in response to this revolt the new york colonial assembly passed a law in 1708 titled act for preventing the conspiracy of slaves which made a death sentence the punishment for any enslaved person who murdered or attempted to murder his enslaver i'm not a historian if you guys want to join our facebook discussion group we can talk all about it this law however could not deter people from fighting for their freedom. You think a lot, you think you think that a death sentence is going to scare me? I'm in a death sentence right now. On April 6, 1712, there was another slave revolt in New York City. Now the population in New York City at this time, 1712, is between 6,000 and 8,000 people and about 1,000 of them were enslaved people. The enslaved people up here, they had pretty good contact with each other, even if they had different owners, which was very different than how things worked on the plantations in the South. Now, this particular rebellion was instigated by these enslaved people who used tenets of African-based religion to encourage other slaves to revolt. On the night of April 6, 1712, a group of enslaved people set fire to an outhouse at the home of Peter Van Tilburg on Maiden Lane, which is kind of like the northern Manhattan area. Now, this fire signaled to the other slave that the revolt has begun. The local whites arrive, and they're trying to put out the fire, and 23 enslaved people came out armed with axes, guns, and swords. Some sources say it was like 50 to 100. Mm, Our history is kind of, so we don't know. The enslaved people stood in front of this burning house and fired into the crowd of whites causing them to panic and flee. And some of them ran to Battery, which is the lower tip of Manhattan, to alert New York's governor, Mr. Robert Hunter. Governor Hunter sends a militia to go deal with the rioters, and when the militia gets there, the slaves like, all right, it's time to make our move, and they run north towards a wooded swamp. Now the soldiers, along with some armed bystanders, go and sweep the city, looking for anybody who could have participated in a riot, and... They captured a lot of them near present-day Canal Street. In the whole process, nine whites were killed and six were wounded. The numbers vary depending on your sources. Now, many of the slaves were captured, recaptured. There were somewhere between 40 to 70 slaves that were brought to trial. And instead of waiting to see what their fate was, six slaves actually committed suicide. About 18 were acquitted and a few were pardoned. Of them that were brought to trial, there were four women, Sarah, Abigail, Lily, and Amba. So this is kind of big news. And the rest of them were convicted and brutally executed, including Sarah and Abigail. Four were burned alive. One was crushed by a wheel. 
One was kept in chains until he starved to death, and the other was hanged. Now, one of the two women were pregnant. We're not sure if it was Sarah or Abigail. Court records, fires, floods, the lack of information. I cannot tell you which one of 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 them it was. So either Sarah or Abigail was pregnant and she was given a stay of execution. Not because they had sympathy with of the baby, not because they thought, "Oh my goodness, we can't kill a woman that has a child." They said, "We can't kill this woman because she has my property inside of her." They said that when they did nothing yet. Obviously at some point she had the child and this woman, not sure if it was Sarah, Abigail, Sarah Gale, Sarah Gale is sitting in the prison for years. There are letters from Governor Hunter, who was the governor up in New York, to the queen asking for a pardon. And they're taking these letters by boat. There are letters where he's like, I'm, I wait, I await your arrival. I wait, I wait to hear what you say. But that queen ended up dying, child. And so then there was a king that was put in place. He never asked again. So what happened to her? Who she was? Don't know. Now, the New York authorities use this revolt not as a lesson that slavery is bad and obviously enslaved people don't like this, but more so as a lesson that the laws are not quite strict enough. So they go and they enforce these strict slave codes, which included, but were not limited to, harsher punishments left to the slaveholders' discretion, decreased contact among enslaved, amongst enslaved people. They were not allowed to gather in a group of more than three. They could not own firearms, and they just did away with manumission, which is when an enslaver directly frees a slave as opposed to the enslaver dying and then the slave become free or from a government action. Now, New York maintained slavery for decades after that. In 1799, the New York State Legislature passed the Gradual Emancipation Law of 1999 to free enslaved children born after July 4th of 1799. But that was only once they reached the age of 25 for women and 28 for men. Now, at this time, there was nothing in place for anybody born before July 4th, 1799. Years later, the Gradual Emancipation Law of 1817 stated that any African-American born before July 4th of 1799, now they could become free, but not until July 4th of 1827, which is 10 years later. And anybody born before July 4th of 18, they're still indentured as children, but now only until the age of 21. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. The North was so great. How gracious. America. By July 4th, 1848, all African Americans in New York were theoretically free. The United States, of course, did not abolish slavery until the 13th Amendment. But just because you were now free, of course, 14th Amendment, you then get citizenship if you were born here. And then it's like you see, I don't know, Tazzy, it's like you see one hill, like you get over one mountain and then there's another mountain. Like, yes, now we're free. Now we have all this race discrimination. 
yes, we've gotten past Jim Crow laws. Now we have police killings. Well, we've always had right. police killings, right? So, like, it's... It's a constant and I just, battle it's, appeal. It's a constant battle. It's a constant uphill battle being black in America and being black just anywhere in the diaspora. You know what I'm saying? And I think women especially are not talked about, not highlighted enough in their fights for freedom. You, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like in this, if there were people that were acquitted and these women were not. So you know what that means? That they were out here fighting, leading, planning, plotting. And we see it throughout history. And I think a lot of historians, I was listening to a couple of historians and I think, and some feminist historians, and they were talking about, they just think that like, the historians is not that they're not smart. It's that they still have a patriarchy. They still have a mind from the patriarchy. Like they can't even fathom that a woman would do something like this and they gloss over it. I think they definitely minimize our role. They definitely don't like to give all the credit that it's due. But it's you always see, like, when you look back at these historical things, even across other races, you'll see that, like, the first ladies are the ones really guiding the presidents, but it's the presidents right. and the males with all the glory, right? And we've seen it. Like, we've seen it throughout history. And even further back, like, this is a story that happened on American soil, but even going further back on the slave ships, there were women that were leading revolts on the slave ships. And there were these violent acts of resistance. I was reading this book while I was preparing for this episode, Wake by Dr. Rebecca Hall. And it's amazing. It's a, she made it in the form of, it was her PhD dissertation, but she made it in the form of like, well, when, for the viewing audience for us in the form of like, I don't know, like a comic book. It was great. It was fantastic. You guys just ha- get it for yourself. Get it for your kids. And she was doing research on women and women warriors. And just we don't really see women warriors and women fighting, especially black women that are fighting and kicking ass. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And even throughout history, we were kicking ass. Uh, she was looking at this research. There were these researchers that were like putting together like quantitative, they were what are they quantitative historians. So they were putting together a database of all the slave ships that they could find based on the records that they had. Of course, there were many more than the slave ships that they have in this database, but they have a database now and it's like public. I went in on it and it's got like 36,000 slave ships on it, records from them because, because these captains had to write to the queen and they had to databases like journals for their insurance companies because this is a big business the atlantic slave trade big business one of the things that they had they were insuring against was the insurrection of cargo for insurrection of cargo to cover the slaves on the ship like to insure the lives of these slaves on the ship you got to know that like the revolts had to be pretty bad i think it was actually one in every 10 ships had a revolt take place. and Right. So once on the ship called Little George, there was a revolt, and they killed everyone except the navigator because they needed him to take them back home. Got to get home somehow. Right. <laughs> when they looked further into this, they compared the logs, and they realized that the main difference between the ships that did and did not have a revolt were the amount of women on board. And the correlation was the more women on board, the more likely there was to be a revolt. Which is 
crazy. And honestly, I, a lot of historians, again, that misogyny, they just was like, oh, that must just be an anomaly. Like, that just me must be a statistical fluke. But when you look into what the practices of the slave ship were, and this is why, like, the Dr. Rebecca Hall, like, I'm obsessed with her. If you look into what the practices of the slave ship were, they had everybody shackled and chained and underneath the boat during, while leaving the shore and while docking to the shore. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. But, and this was mainly because people, if you were on, like, African soil or if you were on one of the ports, People would try and come and take the ship and save everybody that's on the ship. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. We could see that happening. But they had everybody shackled underneath. However, once they were at sea, they would unshackle the women and the children. And there are some notes, some letters to the king and to the insurance companies talking about how they would have the women and the young boys for their pleasure. And they would have the women out. But they had the women and the children out near the guns. Um, there was there was this writer. This was guy. He was on this. He was on the ship called the Thomas, and he wrote that the women had discovered the arms, and they like purposely left it unlocked. So they were they were get they were planning. Okay, the women that were able to get the guns, you get the weaponry. You're in control. You get to run downstairs and get the men. Next thing you know, we all bussing. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? And the amount of times they're like, I know we chained them up below deck. I don't know what happened. There was another ship where they checked the chains twice before everyone went to bed. They're like, I still just don't know how they got loose. And it's crazy just how many times that how women's role in the revolution is overlooked or overshadowed. And I, there were small glimpses in history of people starting to get it. There is this one letter that was written in 1776, so a little bit later, and it says, quote, for your safety as well as mine, you'll have the needful guard over your slaves and put not too much confidence in the women nor children, lest they happen to be instrumental to your being, surprise, which may be fatal. People were like, you know what? I think maybe I underestimated them. Mm -hmm. Maybe, and I think maybe. we live in a world where where we constantly un underestimate women, and they always somehow get a worser fate. Our freedom is something that we're constantly fighting for, something that we're constantly working towards, striving towards, and hopefully doing our part to make the world a little bit more free. And what would we be without community, without having the people to gather around and to love on and to cherish? Our next podcast is a decolonized podcast for lovers on the margin. In this podcast, you will join your resident sexuality educator, Erica Hart, and East Oakland's very own Ebony Donnelly as they give game, dismantle white supremacy, and kiki in the cosmos somewhere between radical hood, epistemological black queer love ethics, pop culture, houseplants, and a sea of books. This is Hood Rat to Head Rat. All right, everybody. Coming to you live is Ebony and Erica Hart from Hood Rat to Head Rat. That's right. Talking to you this Juneteenth, gay-teenth season yes. about the critical 
often overlooked topic of black relationships. Yes. What are relationships? What kind of relationships are we talking about in this short period of time that we have, babe? Friendships, romantic relationships, maybe familial, but that that's giving that's giving more than 10 minutes. That's giving all about love, Bell Hooks. We don't have time to do a retrospective. I feel like all about love is more than just familial. It's familial. Yes. It is um, romantic, platonic, is that it? Platonic, Non-platonic. Yeah. Friendship? Yes, yeah. there's all of that in there. Yeah. Um, but really what we want to talk about is how state forces um, have historically tried to deny black people the benefit and the power that lies in our ability to be in relationship with one another. The state is invested in black people not being with one another, black people not talking to one another, black people being at odds with one another. Um, This is something that's been going on since slavery. But you see it sort of iterate itself even probably in your own personal life, and I know that we have. So I think that we're just going to talk a little bit about that. Well, what have you discovered about friendships, babe? Well, that, well, I just dis- regard. Well, I've been looking up um, because I want to start at since it's Juneteenth. Um, I want to start with the transatlantic slave trade very quickly, if I can, yes, and can. talking about the scholarship that is surrounding black. When you look up black friendships and slavery, so there is some scant scholarship surrounding. Homosocial is what they call homosocial relationships between enslaved indigenous Africans. This scholarship normally focuses on is cis men and how cis men banded together during um, enslavement in order to maintain their dignity, in order to form their own ideas about masculinity and manhood. Or there's, if it's not just talking about cisgender men or presumed cisgender men, because as we know, in slavery, who the hell knows whose gender was what? Um, if somebody is telling you that you're not human or that you're subhuman, then you likely wouldn't be able to choose your own gender, um, much less choose your humanity. So a lot of scholarship is mostly surrounding relationships between black, presumed black cis men and each other during slavery, hmm. or friendships between, you guessed it, black people and white people. White people. They're enslavers. <laughs> so that is the bulk of, at least for what I've been what able to find. Where did you get this from? Um, I just was looking it up. Black friendships during um, slavery. Hmm. Um, I mean, the most popular sort of rendering of that is talking about the the slave ship, the Amistad, and the events surrounding the Amistad. Amistad means friendship. Oddly enough, a fucking slave ship named Amistad. Mm -hmm. And most of the scholarship, or at least some of the more popular scholarship that I found, is talking about what's called homosocial relationships between presumed um, black cis men who were uh, forcibly kidnapped and enslaved. Mm -hmm. So Erica talks a lot about and other uh, folks in the, especially other black folks in the gender and sexuality space have talked about um, how with black people in slavery, what is the tension there with gender? If you can explain that really quickly. 
the tension with gender and, and and just any marginalized person, colonized person, is that we have been forced into a system that has us perform gender in a way that is honestly unnatural to everyone. Um, but yes. it's been created to enforce capitalism, yes. to enforce a hierarchy of whose body is worthy of existence. And if you go down even further than that, whose gender is worthy of existence, of livelihood, of creature comforts, of basic yes. human needs like water, clean water, clean air, so on and so forth. Yes. So what you have is um, hegemony within the gender binary of white cisgender men having um, mass control over everything and power and black trans women being at the bottom yes. of that com of that um, framework of that structure and not even having basic necessities, not even being able to walk down the street um, with uh, of, with with safety, right? With yes. you know, fear of them, without fear of their lives. For, when we're talking about the transatlantic slave trade, we're talking about chattel slavery. The gender binary was instituted at the auction block, right? It yeah. was that women or what was presumed to be a woman, the gendering of women Women began there where somebody with breasts or a clitoris or perhaps long hair or whatever um, would be standing up on an auction block and be worth more money than yes. a what would be presumed as a cisgender man. Why was a cisgender woman worth more? Because she was oftentimes going to be a wet nurse and also the possibility to produce more slave labor um, through uh, non-consensual sex, also known as rape and sexual assault so yes that also happening but we have to remember that chattel slavery is all indigenous africans that practice so many vast amazing expansive forms of gender expression yes. and gender identity that get erased through the transatlantic slave trade even our storytelling around exactly. slavery is rooted all the time within the gender binary to the point where we have to really dig and search if we want to find out about black people's uh, besides black cis men's experiences during slavery being friends with one another yes and how you forge um your own identity as a person when you're told you're subhuman but also how you forge your own identity in relationship to another person how do you have friendship how do you have relationship under those type of circumstances under bondage and under servitude so oftentimes the a lot of scholarship is talking about how um, black cis presumed cis men became friends friends and formed their own masculinity or thoughts around masculinity with one another. They got to quote unquote be men to one another um, and how that helped them deal with the treachery and the horrors and the terror of slavery and the lack of dignity um, in slavery was becoming friends with one another. Mm. And so I am on the hunt for more information around black, queer and trans people's experiences, but also various gender identities and expressions experience as friends and well, in we're relationship. In now, wanna, we're, we're in it, in it now. We're in it now. That's Actually, a historical it, basis. So now, it didn't continue. how does that play a role in your life specifically? With friendship? Well, because I think that we have been taught to be 
um, Frederick Douglass talked about this, actually, as, as far as his homosocial relationships. He said that a lot of times people unfairly, it was not uncommon for people to charge slaves with being horrible to one another. Ain't that interesting? Mm. That slave, that, that where white people are kidnapping and murdering and enslaving people, the charge would be that other black people don't fuck with one another. Oh, even during slavery. Crime. It even started early. Slavery. Or that, oh, not even just crime, but that black people just don't like one another. Yeah. You hear all the time where, you know, there's be this this tension, even these fake things created like alt-black, where, yeah. you know, a person will say, I like anime, or I like um, Fallout Boy, and other black people didn't like me because of that. In talking about this, the way it iterates itself for me is that I just want it to be a big mass love orgy, non-sexual, on the ace spectrum or sexual in nature, whatever. I just have this idea, this real actual kumbaya, the real meaning of it, of black people just coming together. No, you don't. Yes, I do. No, you don't. I want us to all be together, and no, that's my don't. problem. No, you don't. No, you don't. Why are you saying that? You have a hard time having relationships with mass people. I don't believe yeah, that. Yeah, that is too to much to there. get into. No, it is. We're talking but about that plays a role Eb, in the actual social and warfare, mm-hmm. psychological warfare yeah. that's been created, right? That says we're not supposed to be in relationship with each other. We're supposed to be in competition. We're supposed to go up against each other. Yes. We're supposed to be jealous of one another. We're yes. supposed to constantly be um uh feel like we can't trust each other, right? Mm-hmm. We have to talk about or that. Be, be homophobic or transphobic so that yes. we can better assimilate into whiteness so that they don't pay attention to our black ass. We got to be straight enough. We got to be cis enough. That we got to be all these things part. enough the so that white people... of each other. Exactly. How we discard each other on a very micro sort of level. Yes. I think that has to be talked about. It has community. to be. Right? It's not some big fact necessarily other than the fact of the Amistad, which you didn't say. Yes. yes. Um, I'll just... I mean, I'll, I'll input that. Don't worry about that. Oh, okay. But yes. I was... I wanted to add, you know, when you said the fact about the Amistad, that is so wild that such a violent space would be related to as friendship. Yes, which the word Amistad means friendship in Spanish. But the interesting thing is that there was friendship. Even if there wasn't friendship in the sense of what we may define it in contemporary terms, essentially the... Uh, the the enslaved people revolted. That's another example of black people coming together. Our slave revol- rebellions and revolts, which we don't talk about a lot in history. They don't want you to know that black people were actually commandeering ships on a regular basis. It wasn't just the Amistad, just because there was a movie about it. Mm-hmm. The Amistad was just one example. It was one of the later examples in 1839, where the Mende people who were stolen from Sierra Leone in route to Cuba on a Spanish slave ship, you know, knocked off the the captain, knocked off the cook, commandeered the ship, told them bitches to take us back to um to Africa, and then they faked and they didn't actually take them back, and then they came here and they got arrested for murder and piracy and all this other stuff. There's a lot there with that case, um, but that requires that level of strategy that level of forethought requires what Malcolm X called black people caring about one another Mm -hmm. what he talked about he talked about that a lot actually I know but the fact that um, you have to go back the Mm. colonizer naming a ship Amistad Mm -hmm. and that is a violent space 
But did they think about it as, as But why would it have the name of friendship? I don't know. That's something to think that about. That is. That like is something to we, think about. How we discard friendships. Like yeah. there is a lot of A damn of, slave ship represented friendship to white Spanish. Okay. People. Yeah. Like I think we have to look at how we relate to our friendships mm. as lower than our romantic relationships on a hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Right? Like what is the connect there's gotta be a connection there. Well there's right? people's friendships are you gotta also look at are your friendships serving a are your friendships serving a purpose that is, uh, are you, is your friendship serving the state? Can your friendship, can the state about. actually what I'm talking about. and the white oppressive power systems, can they benefit from the type of friendships you have? This is what I'm talking about. Or the type of people who you don't want to be friends with or how you choose and select who your friends are? Is it a business transaction? Yes. Is it a business transaction? This is, we don't talk, we talk about this in romantic relationships. Yes. We spend a lot of time with, is the state, you know, involving itself in your relationship? Mm -hmm. Is anti-blackness present in your romantic relationship? Exactly. But rarely do we look at how people relate to friendships as transactional. Absolutely. And that's what the Amistad was. It was a transaction. Yes. And that's what they decided to name it. Yeah, like, that's I think right, that Erica. There's a, I don't know. That's right. <laughs> so, I mean, we don't have a lot of time, but we're going to, you know, we're going to talk about this again. We're going to talk about this again. Are so you, you relating to your friends as a business transaction? But not only... Uh, Happy I love the, the Amistad. Okay. And also, but on the flip side of that, Erica, the freedom... Mm-hmm. that can be had, the actual liberation that can be had mm-hmm. when black people choose one another. Yes. So often we are choosing white people. Ooh. We're choosing white people Capitalism. at every mm-hmm. turn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What can we do to forward the aims of liberation and freedom that our ancestors did on that on during Juneteenth in Galveston, Texas, what can we be learning from our ancestors about kinship, mm. closing ranks, coming together? Mm. Let's not look at that as, oh, that's without analysis or that's not sociopolitical enough. That's just whatever. Mm. People being friends with one another or community. Mm. We, Erica talks, we talk about this a lot. This mm-hmm. idea of community, mm-hmm. the black community. Mm-hmm. What does that mean for us? Mm-hmm. How are we going to go about the business of being a community mm-hmm. as black people this Juneteenth and Gayteenth season? Yeah. What are we going to do about that? Yeah. So that is something really critical that we we want to talk about and we want to explore more. Um, I had an idea where I said, I want black people to go up to other black people one day and just say hi to one another. Mm-hmm. But then I'm like, that could get sticky. That's even sticky. talking about, it's, it's pride. Mm-hmm. I don't even want, I know we're jumping around, but it's pride. Talking about ballroom. Yeah. Like that is black people coming and- to together mm-hmm. in actual community mm-hmm. because of the white dominant cis hetero yeah. world yeah. forcing us yep. onto the margins of society and on the margins we meet one another and that's family yeah that's how we that we're one of the shining examples i think the black queer and trans community is a shining example for black folks, the, the wide, larger black community, global community of how to really do community and be a community. Is it perfect? No, but I'm not, I don't think that there's a measure of, commu- of a community is perfection. I think you mm. are one of the last people, one of the last black people on the planet who really desire community in a real way. Mm-hmm. 
that is not transactional, that is actually a decolonized love for black people. Yeah. You really just want to talk to people and say hi to them and be interested in what they got going on during the day. The only benefit for you is that they said hi back. That's yeah. it. You don't even care if they ask how you're doing necessarily. You just yeah. want to focus on them, which, you know, we could get into the trauma of them not asking about you, but th- on a separate podcast. But I just feel like that is so beautiful where even the example of ballroom, because we could talk about how ballroom also has its hiccups. Right? Yes. It also has its downfalls as well. The the Sometimes the space is not safe for everybody yeah. who participates in ballroom. Yeah. Um, Especially but, with the scrutiny and the guys of whites coming right. in. 100%. Okay. The, but not just the and scrutiny not, mm-hmm. and the, the gaze mm-hmm. of white people coming in. It's just in the, with the presence mm-hmm. of white supremacy. Yes, you, you're right. You start to behave in a particular, psychological warfare mm-hmm. have you behaving in so many ways mm-hmm. against the people who look like you. 100%. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you have really worked to be in community with people Thank in you, a Dave. real way. Thank you, um, In a way that it breaks your heart when people are not in community with mm-hmm. you. Yes. Um, and I think that that is something to to kind of to sit with mm-hmm. for Juneteenth, you know, yes. like the 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 level of community that it required mm-hmm. to actually get the news in Texas. Yeah, right. It wasn't one person it was sent to, no. right, and it wasn't one person that found out and kept it to themselves mm-hmm. or told one of their friends or only invited a few of their friends to hear the news. Yes. Right, everybody needed to know, and everybody was going to be aware of it. You know, you know what I mean? Yes. Like I feel mm-hmm. like that level of community is is gone in to a lot of ways. To be fugitives, to have maroon communities of your own, yeah. you gotta be linked up. You gotta be. That's how that's that's how Juneteenth happens. Yes, that's how that happens. Black people free themselves because they didn't know. Yeah, they didn't know, and they had to go and tell each other. Yeah. Think about that. Yes. We had to go and tell each other that everybody was now going to get another stimulus check. Everybody wouldn't know. Well, what if I go and tell everybody that you could be free? What if I go and tell every black person you deserve reparations? Yeah. What if I go and tell every black person that transphobia and homophobia, that's a form of code switching. Yes. That's your, that yes. is of the white man, what yes. you're doing. Yes. What if we go, we, we try our best. Yes. You know what I'm saying? That you that you are you deserve and are worthy of love, that there is nothing on the other side of white supremacy yes. there for you. Yes. There's so much good news that we could be spreading in Juneteenth. But just like on mm-hmm. Juneteenth, black people were trepidatious too. Yes. They, they absolutely. were like, Oh, I don't know, I don't know about all that. I'm yeah. not free. Yeah. That's kind of what we deal with now. Yeah. Yeah. It's deep. Yeah, it is. It's, it's super very deep. deep. We're gonna keep talking about this. We're going to keep talking about this. We're going to keep talking about this now. We're going to keep it rolling. (laughs) Okay. All right, right. y'all. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hood rat to head rat. Let's go. Happy Juneteenth. I mean, Happy Juneteenth. Juneteenth. Shout out to all the other podcast <laughs> episodes. Shout out to Sisters Who Kill. Shout out to Sisters Who Kill. You go check their podcast out. Murder. Oh, well, we did the homicide. The homicide was a motherfucking murder. That was a murder. Yes, they was murder. Well, well, is that murder? That's well, they murder. had to carry out murder, murder in order to reveal true crime because the whole story has not been told. The whole story. It is Sisters Who Kill. Next episode. It wasn't a crime because they were. They were they were forcibly Isn't enslaved. That fucked? It's not a That's crime. Fucked. Yeah, it's a crime against humanity. Oh, d- okay. I'm a sad out. <laughs> that was a really great chat. I think that friendships and community and those platonic friendships that you create are so important, just in our black experience. 
Yeah, I used to have this um, book growing up called It Takes a Village, and I feel like that's always resonated with me. Like, it's more than just your immediate family, but the friends you make family and all of that, you know? Right. They, y'all all my cousins, sisters, brothers, right. nieces, uncles. I ain't got no siblings, but I got a ton of nieces and nephews. Mm-hmm. And I think that love for each for one another, that love for each other is so amazing, like they just spoke about. But those real feel-good love relationships as well, and that's why I'm really excited about our next podcast. We all know freedom is a constant struggle, and sometimes it's hard to remember to stop and be grateful for the many moments in history where we gain another piece of the jigsaw puzzle that is our freedom. We talked about the physical fight towards freedom, but freedom can come from love, and there's no better podcast to talk about love throughout our history than Randy and Mikey from Black Millennial Marriage. In their podcast, they talk about the ups and downs, the twists and turns, and the lessons of being black millennials and married. Telling us about the first black legal marriage license in the U.S., Black Millennial Marriage Podcast. Hey, y'all. Hey, I'm Mikey. And I'm Randy. And we are the hosts of the Black Millennial Marriage Podcast. Where we give you an uncensored look into all we're learning, unlearning, and loving about marriage in real-ish time. (laughs) We're excited to have the opportunity to reach new listeners, and we're grateful for the veteran listeners who always tune in to whatever BMM does. Yeah, we're glad to be here. Yes. And lastly, before we get started, we'd like to give a special shout out to the Sisters Who Kill fan base who are probably hearing of us for the first time. Time. Nice to meet y'all. It's actually nice to just be in this space in general. I know that you are actually like a nerd. I'm a real life fan. And a huge fan of murder mysteries and this podcast specifically. Yes, Marat and Taz. Oh my God. You know I love Sisters Who Kill. I won't judge you because that's not the purpose of us recording this. No, it's not. But I'm judging you. I love them and I'm so excited we are doing this. All right. So in this short and sweet episode, we are taking it way back to when we used to do love stories on our own podcast. And we'll now tell the story of Benjamin Barry Manson and Sarah Ann Benton White Manson, a formerly enslaved couple who received their marriage certificate on April 19th. 1866 in Tennessee. Absolutely. Now we're going to break this down into a couple of pieces. All right. In our first mini segment, we're going to tell a quick story about our marriage license debacle (laughs) in April of 2016 um, when we also got married. Yes. Then we'll share uh, Benjamin. We will share Benjamin and Sarah's story and we'll end with a fight or flight where today I'm confronting Mikey about acting like he has no home training. I don't have any home training. And if we have time, (laughs) we'll wrap it up. But it's not an act. If we have time, Mm -hmm. we'll wrap it up with a quick PDA where we tell each other why we love each other or thank each other for something as a way to end the show on a high note instead of on a fight. Sounds good. All right. Let's get into it. Main topic, love. All right. So backstory. Uh, Okay. So we also (laughs) got married in April. Mm-hmm. That's like and, the season, by the way, of yes. like weddings. Shout out to all people who get married in April, okay? Um, but we didn't know that when we picked the date, by the way. You just wanted to do 424, and I was like, yeah, because you told me why. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, we got Did I ever tell you why we, got, yes, why we chose April 24th? <laughs> I know. Was I don't it? think that the people there celebrating our love knew. Oh, well. it's still funny. That was the first time we ever. Good times. Had sex. Yeah. I realized it because I used to keep track of those things because I was. 
uh, in love high school girl anyway Absolute and mess. so uh i was like oh wait this date Makes falls perfect on sense. a sunday oh yeah just great day to get married mm-hmm. and it like brings it full circle maybe full we're circle. not sinning if we do it like it's like a full circle anyway so we sick got married mm-hmm. and it was wonderful people still talk about our food to this day the food was delicious i'm just saying the vibes were vibes it was great it was so anyway yeah. we couldn't find our marriage license Randy couldn't find our marriage license. We couldn't find our marriage license. I was not. I was like, it's it's gonna turn up. And then, as y'all, I don't know if y'all know, but marriage license, you have like a, a certain day to turn it in. That's not common knowledge because I didn't start caring we, until you said like we got a yeah, week we have or like two a to day to turn it in. Like we have a certain time frame, and I was worried that we'd have to get remarried. Like I didn't know we're how like, that worked. We gotta do the whole ceremony over. We gotta tell everybody to come back out. Like that's not how this works. Long story short, we did not have to do that. Mikey had a dream. Yeah, we was on a cruise. I was like, it's in the basket. <laughs> It can only be in like one of two places. They gave us a basket full of stuff. Like we got to take home some food. Um, so they fed us afterwards, wine, um, and like all of our cards and stuff. I was like, it has to be in there. There's no other place it could be. And lo and behold, we get back to our adorable apartment. first apartment. After we got married and it was there. It was just sitting right there. So ultimately, one of the reasons I was stressed about um, the marriage license was because marriage is a commitment. And mm-hmm. We do take that paper seriously. Absolutely. And it's a really big deal. And that is why we can identify with Benjamin and Sarah. Ooh, okay. You see how I did that? That was an amazing pivot. Yes. So our sources for this story is Zen Education Project and the article from the National Archive, Sealing the Sacred Bonds of Holy Matrimony. Okay. Okay, y'all. So for those who may not be aware, the Freedmen's Bureau was an agency of the War Department set up on March 3rd, 1865 to assist formerly enslaved people free from slavery by emancipation and obtaining relief, land, jobs, fair treatment, and education. And on April 19th, 1866, Benjamin and Sarah received their marriage license from the Bureau. Why is this a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because Benjamin and Sarah were husband and wife for more than two decades, with a total of about 16 children. Um, But because they were enslaved, their marriage was not fully recognized by the southern, Southern governments and offered no protections or benefits, rewards, securities, or anything like that to the enslaved. Right. And again, we we reiterate that the slave marriages had no legal protections Mm. and weren't recognized. And because they weren't, for years, Benjamin and Sarah lived on separate plantations, even though they had been married since October of 1843 and that's nearly 26 years ago we did the math real quick that yeah, may be wrong yeah, but we, we didn't we should have just used calculator <laughs> but that was a long time 26 years so more than two decades 16 right. children and forced to live in separate spaces mm-hmm. um the marriage license was a big deal for them because it recognized that they had been devoted to each other they right. had children together um and it gave them hope they would one day allow them to live together as a family right and for those who may not know as well while marriages for the enslaved were not recognized it was very important for people to have the opportunity and uh to engage in a ritual and a ceremony that indicated that they were marriage mm-hmm. and that the marriage is real and so before there were marriage licenses for black people there was jumping of the broom which we did yeah we also did jump the broom we actually stepped over it and jumped because i was wearing heels and i was not about to do that i was <laughs> Not gonna bust my ass right there. Nobody. I love you so, so in some instances, the broom was held out about an inch on the ground, and the couple had to jump. And if anyone fell over the broom or touched it in any way, it was said that, that person um, who didn't like who didn't fall on it would be the boss of the house in marriage. However, mm-hmm. if no one fell over it, there would be no bossing. That is a direct quote. I thought that was very funny. All right. Historically, ex-slaves were not usually allowed to marry outside of the plantation they were on because slave owners believed that it would take away from the work. And that they would grow too independent, mm-hmm. which is 
frustrating and angering. But in some cases, wealthy slave owners would buy the spouse of their slaves. Um, in other cases, enslaved men were allowed to visit their wives on the weekends or in Benjamin's case at night. Um, because the plantation that he lived on was so close to Sarah's. Any children had by the enslaved woman who lived on another plantation, other than the one that her husband lived on, uh, were property of her slave owner, and the husband's slave owner had no rights to them um, or how or when they worked. And in this case, Benjamin and Sarah were actually one of the few enslaved who did have an official ceremony with the provision of their owners. They were married on Sarah's owner's porch, Dr. White, mm -hmm. who later bought Benjamin shortly after their marriage. Um, but years later, Benjamin's former master would buy him back until he was emancipated. I'm not saying why people shall pay for their crimes. But to close, the Freedmen's Bureau. If you're wondering if this is going to take a turn where Sarah becomes a sister who kills. But <laughs> it's not. Go ahead, Randy. To close, the Freedmen's Bureau is one of the most important record holders of marriage between black people before and after the Civil War. And black people today can have access to the formal body of proof of a slave ancestor's marriage. Mm -hmm. That's a really big deal. And I'd like to say and end that learning about this couple and being reminded of how marriages were treated for those who were enslaved has given me insight about why the paper, in quotes, is so important to black people uh, that desire to have your commitment be real and official may just be ancestral mm. Mm. because there was a time where being recognized as being in a legal relationship was not available to us no that's a good one i remember that argument on social media about what five years ago i don't remember it like why is the paper such a big deal it doesn't need to be on paper to be official it's it's like, okay like Okay. Um, <laughs> engagement, y'all. So as we continue to learn more about our history and we take this Juneteenth to celebrate stories like this, let us know what you thought of Benjamin and Sarah's love story. And if it has made you change your mind about marriage or giving you any type of insight, feel free to shoot us an email at blackmailmare at gmail.com. That's B-L-A-C-K-M-I-L-M-A-R at gmail.com. Also, we love a good voicemail. So yes. if you want, you can leave us a voicemail at 770-750-4098. Or for those who are new to us hit us up on social media you can find us on instagram at black millennial marriage and that'll lead you to all the other places and all the other things right all right so we actually don't have a lot of time for our fight or flight so no, let's, let's, do let's do our pda all right let's get let's into end it some, let's end on a high note all right so a little bit of positivity yes. um one it feels really really great to be on the microphone with it you does. it does it feels nice to like talk to you and to do this in a space where I know that you're like deep down geeking out because I love Suzuki. you have a problem, an unhealthy problem, like a legitimate problem. So it's it's nice to like be able to do this. Um, I know that Juneteenth um, more recently became something that a lot more of our people started to like celebrate openly, regularly. I already took off, like <laughs> like actually did because it's not formally a holiday at my job. Right. But to be able to like do this, celebrate in this way with you and be a part of this is really, really cool. So yes, that's my love. Okay. So my good news or my PDA is how oh, good news. My PDA is um, <laughs> I really am enjoying this. We still got it. Shout out to Sue Kill because we have not recorded in a minute. And but we did this for y'all. Yeah. And I just, I love creating with you. And this is a lot of fun still. And yeah, the, we, there are not many couples who can say they can work together well and <laughs> produce what we have produced. Mm -hmm. And so I am grateful to you and I love you. I love you too. All right, y'all. So you don't want to fight? I'm sure I don't want to fight. Right. Plus that story, Lord Jesus. <laughs> Let's not fight. <laughs> thank you for listening. And thank you, sisters who kill for this opportunity, as we like to say. Be blessed. Don't settle. Fight clean. Peace. Ah, uh, a love story. My absolute favorites. And really, what would we be without love? 
love for each other, love for our community, love for the dream of getting free. And that love for your community is really strong, a longing not only for you to be successful and see the riches and beauty and all the thing that life has to offer, but wanting to help others along that journey as well. And our next podcast does just that. The Journey to Launch podcast explores all aspects of reaching financial freedom and financial independence from increasing income, paying off debt, investing, saving, and learning how to retire early and become wealthy. Telling you a story today is the Journey to Launch podcast. Hey, 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 this is Jamila from the Journey to Launch podcast, and I love talking about wealth building, financial freedom, financial independence, and empowerment. And so for this Juneteenth episode, I want to pay homage to call back and remind ourselves of a woman, maybe you haven't heard of her, but hopefully from today, you'll never forget her name, a phenomenal woman, Maggie Lena Walker. Maggie Lena Walker was the first woman to charter and run a bank. She's also a black woman. So first woman to charter and run a bank and be a bank president. Let me tell you more about Maggie Lena and why we should all know her name. Maggie Lena Walker was born on July 15th, 1864. She's an American businesswoman, teacher, and so much more trailblazer. In 1903, Walker became the first woman, black or white, to charter a bank and serve as a bank president. Walker was born to enslaved parents on July 15, 1864, in Richmond, Virginia. After the Civil War, her mother worked as a laundress and her father as a butler in a popular Richmond hotel. Walker was often known to say, I was not born with a silver spoon in my mouth, but with a laundry basket practically on my head. When Walker was 14, she joined the Independent Order of St. Luke's, an African-American benevolent and fraternal organization. So let me just talk a little bit about what a benevolent and fraternal organization is. So the Independent Order of St. Luke's, Black Fraternal Order, it provided the means for Black community members to create resources to promote independence, self-reliance, and success that was not available to them by white businesses due to segregation. So these orders, these these organizations were extremely important to the Black community as they were coming out of slavery and needing to establish economic power and footing in the world. Within the organization, Walker held many high-ranking positions. She began publishing the organization's newspaper in 1902 called the St. Luke's Herald. She also encouraged African-Americans in Richmond to harness their economic power by establishing their own institutions through the newspaper. She even founded a department store, St. Luke Emporium. And I find it fascinating that the, the things she created and started within the organization were through communication, so through media and through reaching Black people through the newspaper and then also through selling and through trading goods. And she was able to hire a lot of Black people. I mean, Black people worked in these positions and in the office to be able to run these new founded experiences and businesses she was giving to the community. Now, in 1903, she founded the St. Luke Penny's Savings Bank. She was the first woman of any race to charter a bank in the United States, the bank was a powerful representation of the Black self-help in the segregated South. 
To even prepare for her position, she spent two hours a day at the white-owned Merchants National Bank of Richmond studying procedures and operations of the bank. Super smart to know that she needed to understand really what it took to run a bank from the inside out, even as she was serving as the president. Now, the focus of all her entrepreneurial endeavors was not just on individual success, but she wanted community advancement. So to run these businesses, Walker employed the workforce, which was made of primarily Black women. And this provided a higher wage than the laborious physical wages that typically Black people held and the menial housework and chores that they typically were hired for. So under Walker, Black women worked as stenographers, accountants, journalists, and secretaries. I found this account uh, that talked about the day the bank opened, and I just love it. And it talks and says, while music played and speeches were given, nearly 300 eager customers, many of them members of the fraternal organization, waited patiently to open bank accounts. And while some people deposited more than $100, others started accounts with just a few dollars, including one person who deposited just 31 cents. Come on now. So you see that person knew if they didn't even have enough as, as anyone else, they wanted to be a part of it. They wanted to be, they wanted to, to also contribute and to, to start their financial future. I love this idea of them going with 31 cents. At the end of the day, it says the bank had 280 deposits totaling over $8,000 and sold $1,247 worth of stock, bringing the total to over $9,000. So in today's dollars, that's about $322,000 that they were able to fund and open the bank with. A decade later, so a decade, 10 years later, Walker's bank was managing about $200,000 in assets, so about $5 million in today's assets. By 1924, the Penny Saving Bank had spread to other parts of Virginia and included more than 50,000 members, all led by Miss Walker. Okay, at the expansion, the innovation, the uh, getting people to sign up. They said she encouraged even children to sign up or to tell their parents about signing up by giving out little piggy banks in the community. And while other banks collapsed during the Great Depression, St. Luke's Penny survived. And you know how they survived? They consolidated with two other large African-American banks and moved to downtown Richmond. So not only was she a visionary, but she knew that in order to be able to survive change and to withstand the economic downturn, she had to bring in and join forces with other banks with other strong forces and institutions in order for her to survive the everything that was happening at the time. During its long history, the bank founded by Maggie Walker benefited the African-American community in Richmond. By 1920, for example, it had issued more than 600 mortgages to Black families, allowing many to realize the dream of home ownership. After an illness in 1928, Walker was forced to use a wheelchair, and although limited in movement, Walker remained a leader in the Richmond African-American community. She, she passed away in December 15, 1934. So give it up for Maggie Lena Walker. I do not actually remember learning about Maggie as much as some other figures I've learned about in the past, but wow, I mean, she should be on the list of who we all learn about as an inspiration. If you think back on when 
women in general were able to open up bank accounts without the signature of men. So at, you know, for until the 1970s, women, we could not open up bank accounts and, you know, add on being a black woman, you had less, you had less authority, less, less rights. And so the fact that a black woman was able to do what she did in the 1900s, in the early 1900s is amazing. And what also I want to call to your attention is the fact that she was born in Virginia, born in Virginia, 1864, right? This is a Juneteenth episode. The slaves were supposed to be emancipated via the 13th amendment on January 1st, 1863. But because it was hard to implement the emancipation proclamation in the Confederate States, especially those in the West, freedom didn't come to many until June 19th, 1865, when 2,000 Union union troops arrived in Galveston Bay, Texas. So that is hence June 19th, right? And so think about that. In 1863, the slaves were supposed to be free. Maggie Lena was born in 1864, only a year from that. And not only was she born right when all this was happening, but she was born in Virginia. Virginia was the largest state in population and industrial capacity to join the Confederacy, and it soon became the capital. So Virginia was the capital of the Confederacy, and this is the environment and what she had to grow up in. And even despite, possibly, if if I'm trying to go back and think about what her life would have been like, which is really hard to imagine, but if we can go back and think about that, how many people told Maggie or looked at her like who are you what are you trying to do you know you have no rights not you just and doubted her and what it took for her to say to herself despite what you think I have a plan I have something in me that's telling me to move forward and to to implement these ideas in my head and I think this is a call to all of us that despite our current financial situation or where we currently feel we are in life, that whatever dream or goal you have inside of you is worthy of accomplishing. I mean, talk about legacy, the fact that she blazed a trail that so many of us, many of us are following that maybe we'd even know, you know, by name who she was, but now we do. And think about whatever trail you're blazing doesn't have to be you're starting a bank. It could be you're paying off debt. It could be you're saving up for that house you want to buy or to give your children a good life. Whatever that goal is for you financially, it is worthy and you are worthy of achieving it. And so I want to just, you know, give, give all the praise and respect and just love to Maggie Lena Walker for who she was, what she did. And I hope that this story inspires you. I will link and cite all the the resources for this information in the show notes. So where you find or listen to this episode, thank you so much for listening. Learn, teach, adapt, readapt. Whew, being black in America is something else, ain't it? Mm-hmm. Financial freedom for ourselves and for our communities. Yeah, I think that money is so important because, you know, Learning math or learning how to read, all of that was an act of rebellion. And literature is something, 
especially Black American literature, is an act of rebellion in itself. In the History and Book Recommendation podcast, so what are you reading? Listeners hear about a book, hear the history behind it, and explore with their listeners and guests where their love of reading came from. Tazi, when or where or what moment did you fall in love with reading? Definitely in kindergarten because I was the only one who could read. And so I got to sit in the rocking chair and read to the class. So you were the only one that knew how to read? Yeah, I was reading Junie B. Jones to the class. I was on chapter books. And so she would let me sit in a rocking chair and read to the class. Wow. Um, I did not do that in kindergarten. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I think that my love of reading came um, I think it really came through when I was like sneaking around and I learned curse words and I thought it was so fun when I like saw curse words in books and in novels that I started reading and I was like "Ooh, I'm reading something good and I, I just love a good story um and I think that finding nuggets in a story like that really make me love reading and it really did feel, I mean, even as a kid reading a cuss right felt like a little act of rebellion and maybe, I don't know. So giving us the modern history of black American literature, here is So What Are You Reading? Welcome to the So What Are You Reading podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie. And I'm Alicia. As black people, we transform everything that we touch, blazing trails where there are none, with an extraordinary ability to articulate and infuse our experiences from the diaspora and our place within it into the work. The gift of storytelling has naturally made its mark in literature. We have used literature as both a weapon and a tool to expose the plight of our people and give hope to each other in our stories, which are rich, varied, and span every literary genre on the planet. While the contributions are innumerable, there are many black American authors that have paved the way for others to take on explorations of black identity, the struggles of racism, freedom, and equality. We take this time to honor a few of those who have used their narratives as a vehicle to relate black American experiences in wider American society and celebrate the uniqueness of black culture. Here are a few black authors that have changed the literature game. So James Baldwin was born in Harlem, New York on August 2nd, 1924 to Emma Jones out of wedlock. He was the grandson of an enslaved person and the oldest of nine children. Baldwin attended DeWitt Clinton High School in the Bronx, a predominantly white Jewish school where he worked on the school's magazine, The Magpie. Through those years, Baldwin was able to find his passion for writing in the midst of growing up in poverty and navigating the difficult relationship between him and his stepfather. It was actually Baldwin's time in the pulpit of the church that informed his writing, allowing him to develop his style, cadence, and tone. Through his work, he was able to bring the public awareness to the oppression he experienced as a black man in white America. His honest portrayal of his own experiences challenged America to examine the values it promised in equality, liberty, and justice for all. Unhappy with the way things were looking in America, Baldwin moved to Paris in 1948, where he spent nine years before he felt called to the U.S. in 1957 to be an activist in the civil rights movement. Though he spent much of his time abroad, he remains the quintessential American author, giving voice to black American struggle and his wish to uphold the power of brotherhood. 
and the examination of his civilization in relation to others he had lived in. Some of his notable works include Nobody Knows My Name, about black and white relations in the U.S., Another Country, which examines sexual and racial issues, and Fire Next Time, about the civil rights struggle, where it was headed. The second of two children, Dr. Maya Angelou was born Marguerite Annie Johnson on April 4th, 1928 in St. Louis, Missouri. She got her nickname Maya from her brother Bailey when they were kids, and she spent her teenage years in Oakland, California, where at 16 she became the first black female streetcar conductor in San Francisco. Her interest in written word and language was evident from an early age brought on in response to being mute for six years. This came after her rapist was subsequently killed after being released from jail, causing Angelou to believe that voicing that trauma was dangerous and that she was responsible for his demise. In that time, she took an interest in poetry and memorizing works by Shakespeare and Edgar Allan Poe, distinctly referred to as a redwood tree with deep roots in American culture. Dr. Angelou became a singer, dancer, activist, poet, and writer able to inspire generations with lyrical, modern African-American thought that pushed boundaries. She led a prolific life from her upbringing in depression in the depression era South and her early performing career to her work with figures like Malcolm X and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and her later writing success. Some of Angelou's best work include her autobiography, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, and the Pulitzer Prize nominated, just give me a drink of water before I die. I couldn't even get that out Damn. without laughing. Damn. I tried to be serious about it. You have to be serious. <laughs> but I couldn't. I'm sorry. She also, <laughs> okay. she also produced several plays, becoming the first African-American woman to have her screenplay turned into a film with um, the production of Georgia, Georgia in 1972. She also recorded spoken albums of her poetry, including On the Pulse of the Morning, which she recited at the presidential inauguration of Bill Clinton, becoming the first president to, of uh, the first poet to make an inaugurational recit recitation at, since Robert Frost at JFK's inauguration in, in 1961. That reminds me of um, Amanda Gorman when she did her poet, uh, her poem at Joe Biden's inauguration. That was good. Mm -hmm. You know, her book just got banned. It, but I, her poem, they made it into a book and it got put on the banned books list. Damn. Hey, we gotta cut all this out. Um, <laughs> nah. <laughs> Dr. Angelou lived not just one life, but many, all extraordinarily varied and rich. Her work not only reflects on how the events of history, culture, and the arts have shaped her life and work, but her words have shaped our own worldview. Um, I love Maya Angelou. Yes. All right. A primary contributor of the Harlem Renaissance, Langston Hughes was one of the first to use jazz rhythms in his works, becoming an early innovator of the literary art form jazz poetry. He acted as a central figure that 
of the flowering of black of the black intellectual, literary, and artistic life that took place in the 1920s. And while many American poets during that time were writing esoteric poetry to a dwindling audience, Hughes addressed people using language, themes, attitudes, and ideas that they could relate to. Hughes had a complex ancestry, one where both of his paternal great-grandmothers were enslaved Africans, and both of his paternal great-grandfathers were white slave owners in Kentucky. He was born James Mercer Langston Hughes in 1901, by most sources, even though he says it's 1902, in Joplin, Missouri. Um, he grew up in a series of Midwestern small towns with the family settling in the Fairfax neighborhood of Cleveland, Ohio. There, he attended Central High School, and in 1921, he attended Columbia University in New York City, where he experienced hostile racism from his classmates. Um, he found solace in the black neighborhoods in Harlem, where he would work on his poetry, and he sought uh, to honestly portray the joys and hardships of working-class black lives, avoiding both sentimental idealization and negative stereotypes. He published works like The Crisis, which was an official magazine publication of the NAACP, and The Negro Speaks of Rivers, which became his signature poem and was a collection and was collected in his first book of poetry, The Weary Blues. Hughes then attended Lincoln University in Pennsylvania in 1926 and published The Negro Artist and the Racial Mountain in the Nation, stating that we younger Negro artists who create now intend to ex express our individual dark-skinned selves without fear of shame. If white people are pleased, we're glad. If they're not, it doesn't matter. We know we're beautiful and ugly too. Hughes' work was faithfully recorded. Um, he, faithful, he faithfully recorded the nuances of black life and its frustrations, condemning racism and injustice and celebrating African-American culture, humor, and spirituality. In his own words, his poetry is about workers, roustabouts, and singers, and job hunters at Lenox Avenue in New York, or 7th Street in Washington, or South State in Chicago, um, people up today and down tomorrow, working this week and fired the next. He chose to align and identify with ordinary, everyday black people, seeing it as more profound and truthful to do so. While receiving criticism and even outright rejection from his contemporaries, he remained the apex of literary relevance among the black public. He was able to reflect the deep reservoir of physical and spiritual strength back to black people, and it was that which keeps poetry blatantly around. He's one of the greatest poets. Yeah. Love For his regular poetry. people. He was actually mm -hmm. criticized a lot by contemporaries, like, at the time, including James Baldwin. Like, he was downright, like, shade in my yeah. dude. Like, because he just loved black people so much. Like, he had parents who were anti-black. Like, yeah. his dad moved to Mexico at a young age mm -hmm. and, like, had foregone anything to do with black American life. And Langston Hughes was just not on that. He's yeah, like, no, he was like, like, no, we need to celebrate. Right. Like, the one furthest down is who we want, basically. Right. And mm -hmm. that's why he remains that way to the public. Like, not, necessary, not necessarily to, like, academics, but for us. For regular people. For regular mm -hmm. people. He for us. Okay. Yes. Zara Neale Hurston was an American author, folklorist, anthropologist, and filmmaker. Another Harlem Renaissance pioneer, she was born on January 7th, 1891 in Natasoga, Alabama. Did I get that right? I think so. Okay. <laughs> Though Eatonville, Florida was the place she called home. In Eatonville, Hurston never experienced outright racism. Most black people, that most black people did. Um, it, Eatonville was a a predominantly black town. So black people ran the whole town. It mm -hmm. is um, 
it's, a, it's still a historically black town mm -hmm. in Florida today. She saw evidence of black achievement all around her. Her father worked in town hall formulating laws and her mother was a Sunday school teacher. Unfortunately, Herson's idyllic life was shattered after the death of her mother at age 13, which was quickly followed by her father's remarriage to a rumored mistress. After young Herson almost killed her stepmother in a fistfight, her father eventually set her um, off to a boarding school in Jacksonville, Florida, which, fuck you, guy. Honestly. Let me kill your wife. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me do it, God. Eventually, Hurston would attend Morgan Academy, a Morgan University-affiliated high school, Howard University, Bernard, Uni uh, Bernard College, where she was one of the first black women to attend and receive a bachelor's degree in anthropology on a full scholarship, and she went to Columbia University. While in New York, she started Fire Magazine with Langston Hughes, where they received mixed reviews due to, their, due to the magazine's vulgar and open homosexuality and other taboo subjects at the time. The pair shook up American, uh, black Americans, shook up how black Americans were seen in literature, and Houston sought to deepen and um, complicate black American stories by using her knowledge of her native community and its people. It was these influences and her travels that led her to become an intrigued in hoodoo. She was particularly drawn to the tradition because of the prominent role of women in their rituals. And this was only furthered by the, her study of the priestess Marie Laveau. I love her. Mm -hmm. um, Herson uh, really hit her creative stride when she pursued fiction, drama, anthropology uh, simultaneously. After receiving the Guggenheim Fellowship in March 1936, she was able to travel to Jamaica and Haiti where she began writing Their Eyes Were Watching God, inviting all of her passion for her lover, Percy Punter, into a portrayal of tea cake. During this period, Hurston also wrote Tell My Horse, a blend of travel writing and anthropology based, in her based on her investigations of hoodoo in Haiti and Dust on Dust Tracks on a Road, a highly regarded autobiography detailing an imaginative and exuberant account of her rise from childhood poverty in the rural South to prominent to a prominent place among the leading artists and intellectuals of the Harlem Renaissance. At the time of her death, Hurston was little remembered by the general reading public, but her work saw a resurgence in the late 19, in the late twentieth century resulting in works like Spunk, The Selected Stories, 19, in, uh, coming out in 1985, The Complete Stories in 1995, and Every Tongue Got, Got to Confess in 2001, published uh, posthumously. Hurston aspired to be the authority on Afro-American folklore and, and did just that, cementing herself as an inspiration and one of the best writers of the 20th century. And that is for damn sure. She was a damn good writer. All right. So these are just a few of the black black American authors that have made their mark as masters of the literary field. These are the people that capture the voices of a nation and have both fearlessly and beautifully explored some of the many facets that contribute to being black. Uh, while their styles and voices are ever changing, their ability to influence and educate uh, and to continue to bring incredible value to the community uh, 
goes for now and beyond then. So these are a few of the prominent authors that make our list today, and we just want to extend that question out to you. Who would make your list? Um, thank you all so much for listening and for being with us during our little collab with yes. the Sisters Who Kill podcast. Um, and definitely come check us out at the So What Are You Reading podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can also find us on Instagram at the So What Are You Reading podcast, where you can follow our link tree to figure out all of the places that we are. And please fill out a questionnaire for us if you want to be a guest on the show so we can talk about everything books. And Stephanie? Yeah, I think that's it. We would love to have you. And if you want to hear full episodes of these authors, we have full history episodes of these authors on our on our show. Mm-hmm. So go check that out. Yes. And we will talk to you guys next time. Thank you. Bye. I hope that you found at least one good book to add to your collection. But don't worry, there will be many more books to add. Our next podcast is geared towards our more seasoned listeners. However, they would probably say that I'm extremely young and I have binged all of their episodes. Black women over 40 are out here really defying odds. I mean, they're grabbing happiness. They're living unapologetically. And it's something that we could just learn. Hosted by writer and pleasure seeker Felicia Pride and Ivy Grant, who is a corporate strategist and self-indulger in training, Child Please is a personal and fearless exploration of the pleasures and pains of being Black and woman of a certain age. It's the sister talk that hoots and hollers, testifies and sanctifies to remind you that you're not alone in this. Grown, enough, still figuring it out. Hey, honeys. Hey, honey. Hey, Felicia. (laughs) Hey, Ivy. We want to welcome everyone to this special mini episode of Child Please. It's mini. It's pequeña. I like a little little mini. It's a little, it's it's bite-sized. Okay. It's a little baby. (laughs) We are so excited to be a part of this Juneteenth collaboration with so many dope podcasts. A big thank you to Mara and Taz of the Sisters Who Kill (laughs) podcast for pulling this off together. And if you haven't checked out this podcast, (laughs) yes. If you have not checked out their podcast, please do, honey. Get into it. Honeys, do yourself a favor and check out all of the mini episodes. We've linked collaborator info in the show notes and there's a lot of great black content out here in these podcast streets we love so to much. see it so much so much we love that yes, for us yes. <laughs> we do we do in this episode we're taking a brief glimpse into black women's march towards freedom to live to work to mother to not work to essentially do as love. we damn please without apology So we here at Child Please are laser focused on ensuring that black women are seen from all angles, heard at a high volume with crystal clarity, crystal, and given the respect that we are due. Okay. So let's get into it. This celebration is really about Juneteenth. And Juneteenth originated in Texas, but is now a widely celebrated holiday throughout the U.S. and even parts of Mexico. And just for those who don't know, Juneteenth is really about the day that the last of the unemancipated people who had been enslaved found out that they were emancipated. 
So we take this day to celebrate our freedom, our resilience in the face of white supremacy, and the joy that lives in our hearts that can never be extinguished. Yes, I love that. I love the combination of freedom and joy because freedom is actually one of my words. Like when people ask me what the goal is or what the theme is, yeah. for me, it's freedom. And that's freedom across the board, right? Well, let's talk a little bit about that because I want to explore a little bit about what freedom means to Black women of a certain age, of a certain vintage, shall we say. Because, you know, at Honey Child, that is our main goal, right? We don't just want to try to show black women being free on screen or pursuing freedom on screen, we actually want black women to be free. And that's a very lofty goal, right? Like we're shooting for the stars essentially. But I feel like that's the thing. That's the thing that I want for us. Women should be able to be all the facets of themselves as opposed to having to be in one mold. Because if black people aren't monolithic, damn sure that black women are not monolithic. That makes me think just about the connection between freedom and humanity, right? Like one of the things that our ancestors were trying to maintain too was their humanity. And I feel like in a lot of the work that we do, we want to show us in our full humanity. We want to, we don't want to strip us of any parts of our humanity, exactly. but we show the fullness of it. So for me, one of the big elements of freedom is about reinvention. Because I think Mm. that the idea that I could be anything has always been something that's been really cool to me. So um, for people who know me, know me well, I had been obsessed with Harriet Tubman for a really long time. (laughs) I know this sounds like a crazy, it's a crazy, like, right, to be of of a person to be obsessed with. Like, why are you obsessed with Harriet Tubman? I read. I mean, I get it. Harriet was a G. She was a G. She really was. She was a soldier. But what was really interesting to me is like, yes, yes, yes. Underground Railroad. I hear that. Yeah. Okay. But that was actually early on in Harriet's life, right? Like she ran from slavery in her twenties and really from her twenties through her thirties was when she was out active in the Underground Railroad. And then came the Civil War. Harriet was about 40 when the Civil War started. And then she reinvented herself the first time. She became a nurse. She became a spy. She was the first woman to lead an armed assault during the Civil War. So she was like always out here in these streets, like completely helping the army to win the war. And then she reinvented herself again, because after all of that was over and she went home, like probably 45, 50 years old. Do you know what she did? Tell me. Tell me what she did. She started living her best life. She married a guy 22 years younger than her. She she adopted a baby. She got a big house and she lived out her life in her best life being an advisor to folks from the afar. She was like, I'm not getting all involved in that no more. I think I've done what I need to do. You know why I love that so much too? It sounds like she didn't have to rescue everybody to the ground. Do you know what I mean? So she had nothing left for herself. And I love that. It sounds like she was able to live a little bit. Find a little space of happiness of her own that wasn't about giving to everyone else. Within the context of like wild shit happening, right? (laughs) Within the context (laughs) of like post-Civil War, close to post-Civil War. But still, and that to me is the beauty of Black people, yes. right, is our ability 
or even our desire to want to carve a space of joy for ourselves in the midst of living under such oppressive institutions and laws and culture and countries. And so that that is beautiful. Like, I didn't know that about her because, you know, they got Harry with the gun all, all, the, the, time. all the time. And I'm actually quite inspired by that. Now, don't not to say that her last years weren't a fight because, you know, she tried to live a real and authentic life for that phase of her life. You know, what I've really been trying to also embrace is the idea that freedom since that's my my word and my pursuit, is actually internal mm. and not necessarily external, right? So like even in the pursuit of quote unquote financial freedom or the pursuit of the things, like one example is like you may have a lot of money, but if you're still worried about money, you're not free. You know what I mean? So like Speak how do I it. how do I really focus on the internal freedom and what that looks like for me, whether that's, you know, getting as close to my authentic self as possible, if that's boundaries, what does that look like? Because external shit is always going to be wild and I can't control that. Yeah. You know what I mean? But how do I find freedom within is something that I'm really been thinking a lot about when I think about black women and freedom and what that looks like today. And then how do we find the continued fight for our external freedoms, because I is tired. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I'm just like, how do we how do we balance the two? That's a really hard question. And I've spent a lot of time more recently working on more of my self-talk. Mm. Because like when you say how do you get free inside, that is definitely something that I am working on deeply. Because it's so hard to realize that I am so hard on myself mm. and what you have to open up inside of you to like give yourself softness. Yes. That is the kind of freedom, Ooh. like a freedom from the heart, always having to be so hard on myself for everything that I can't do or that I can't accomplish. Yes. Particularly yes. because sometimes what you can't accomplish is surprisingly one less important than you thought it was. And mm. two, the barriers to accomplishing that thing were oftentimes structural or into, like things that didn't have to yes. do with your level of effort. Does that make At sense? At all. And for systems and places that were built without you in mind in the first place. Word. <laughs> <laughs> so how, Felicia, do you think we should continue to celebrate our freedoms? I actually feel like we need to prioritize freedom. Well, one of the things I do think about is the work that that is our work, right? Working through the trauma that we've experienced, working through the conditioning that we've experienced, that is our work I think we should be doing because it does help to set us free for sure. But then I also think that we do need to celebrate every little goddamn thing. You know what I mean? Because like, we ain't even supposed to be here. I don't know if you ever saw that video that Plies does where he's like, stop asking black women out at dinner. What What is the occasion? What are you guys celebrating? What's the occasion? He's like, balling is the motherfucking occasion. <laughs> and I feel like every day is the motherfucking occasion that we are here. It's we a Wednesday, not- bitch. It's a Wednesday. <laughs> you know how many motherfuckers has been trying to take us out for how long? It's Wednesday. That's why I'm happy. That's why I'm laughing with my girls loudly. That's why I'm telling you to fuck off is because I'm <laughs> celebrating. 
And I just want to see us <laughs> indulge, which is a word I love, more in just celebrating the everyday. I love that as well. So Felicia, this has been a great mini, a pequeña, un poquito episode. <laughs> and you know, we can talk. We can go on I know. And on. We can go on and on. But we want to pop in and pop out. And thank you very much, honeys, for listening in. You've heard this from us before and ain't no lies. We, we say, child, please. Child, please. If you want it, you got it. Go get it. <laughs> Like, say it again so people know what the actual song is. Because you also wrote this. <laughs> in a closet in my house. You wrote this. So child, tell us please, what the lyrics are. Child, please. If you want it, you got it. Go get it. Child, please. Child, please. Mm. The world is waiting for you. I'm about to go out there. The world is waiting for me. Until next time, honeys. Go out and be free. And be free. Be free. Freedom, freedom. I can't move. Freedom, cut me loose. (laughs) What a life to live and be older and have a man much younger and just advise the people and tell them what to do. We've also seen Harriet be depicted in cinema recently. And there is a magic about the movies and there's a magic about storytelling. There's nothing quite like learning the history. But Hollywood and Black Hollywood is something that is just amazing and it's nuanced and the history throughout it is really a testament to how much we have worked towards getting free. Our next podcast is the Professionally Silly Podcast hosted by my audible boo thing Amber Smiles Jones, the Professionally Silly podcast takes its silliness seriously. And the host, Amber Smiles Jones, is not only a great friend, but also an acting theater nerd just like me. And since it's Pride Month, I'm gonna shout her out. If you're in your late 20s and up, you remember her face from a very popular YouTube series telling us the history of Black Hollywood, Amber Smiles Jones. I'm Amber Smiles-Jones from the Professionally Silly Podcast. Today, I want to share some amazing facts about Hollywood Black history. There are so many amazing African Americans that have helped make extraordinary opportunities available to Black folk in the industry today. And there's so much to talk about, fam. It was hard for me to choose which topics to discuss. Oh, and by the way, Juneteenth is actually my birthday, so I'm extra filling myself in this segment today. (laughs) But one of the topics that I have to discuss is the history of black stereotypes in Hollywood. The characters that we were actually allowed to play in movies. Now, there was a time we would only see black actors play slaves, servants, drug addicts prostitutes, thugs, or sometimes just white actors in blackface, all in a negative light, which makes sense because most of these films were written and produced by white people. (laughs) So that's just how it was back then, unfortunately. But I have to say things have definitely slowly changed over the years. We as black entertainers are finally starting to feel the refreshing cool sensation up to our waist at this point. We are dipping more than toes, y'all. Many of us are doing cannonballs into this Hollywood ocean. Black Hollywood history and the Juneteenth celebration 
are related in that both represent significant milestones in the ongoing struggle for racial equality and the representation in American culture. Juneteenth commemorates the day in 1865 when enslaved people in Texas finally learned of their emancipation, two years after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed. Now, this event marked a turning point in American history and is celebrated annually as a symbol of freedom and the end of slavery. Black Hollywood history, on the other hand, represents the contributions and achievements of black actors, directors, producers, and other industry professionals in the film and television industry. It reflects the ongoing fight for the representation and inclusion in an industry that has historically marginalized and excluded black voices. By celebrating black Hollywood history and recognizing the contributions of black creators and artists, we are acknowledging the importance of diversity and representation in our cultural institutions and continuing the legacy of those who have fought for equality and justice. Thus, both Juneteenth and Black Hollywood history are important markers in the ongoing struggle for racial justice and representation in American culture. One of the men that we have to thank for the evolution of Black Hollywood is Oscar Micheaux. Now, Oscar was an author. He produced over 44 films, and he was a film director as well. He made 1919's The Homesteader, the first feature-length motion picture with an all-black cast. Now, that excites me a bit because he started something and passed the baton to the rest of us to take and continue his legacy with black entertainers and creators. Who else has goosebumps right now? Just me? That's fine. He is seen as the first major African-American feature filmmaker and producer of race films. Race films were a genre of film that was produced in the U.S. somewhere between 1915 and the early 1950s. These films were created for black audiences with black casts. Oscar pretty much helped pave the way for people like Tyler Perry, Shonda Rhimes, Jordan Peele, Spike Lee, and more. Being an actor in the 1920s to 40s was freaking tough, and it's not easy now either. But back then, the roles just didn't exist. Plus, without the internet, you couldn't just Google for auditions. Also, the movie trade unions weren't even open to African Americans, so if you were black and you wanted to be a director, a hairstylist, a cameraman, a writer, a set designer, or any other positions out there, good luck. Black folk could not easily get those jobs. Just like in every other job in America, when one door closed, a window slammed shut in our faces. Black people in Hollywood have all done their part to break barriers in their field. I want to shout out some amazing black people who have made entertainment history. And I want to start off with my girl, Hattie McDaniel. This amazing woman tackled Hollywood in the 1940s. She wasn't even allowed to sit with everyone else at the Academy Awards. They made her sit in the back room away from her white castmates. But she was the first black person to win an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress for her role in the film Gone with the Wind, a film she wasn't even allowed to attend the premiere for. 
so she appeared in over 300 films, but was only accredited for 83 of them. She recorded 16 blues sides between 1926 and 1929. She was the first black woman to sing on the radio in the U.S. And when I lived in Los Angeles, I got the opportunity to visit her gravesite at the Forever Hollywood Cemetery to pay my respects to her. It was an amazing experience. And she is, and always will be, a huge inspiration to me personally. Let's meet Ethel Waters. In the 1920s, her career started with her singing the blues. She was a singer and actress, performing jazz, pop, and swing music on the Broadway stage, making her the first black woman to join Broadway. She was also the first black person to star in her own TV series, and it was called The Ethel Waters Show. It was in 1939 on NBC. That's what I'm talking about, Ethel. Get it, girl. But wait, there's more. She was also the first to be nominated for a Primetime Emmy in 1962 for her appearance in Route 66. She also has not one... Not two, but three songs she recorded are in the Grammy Hall of Fame. Stormy Weather, Am I Blue, and Dinah. Y'all, we out here making black history, okay? <laughs> I have to talk about my guy, Sidney Portier. The man was talented. He was an actor, an author, and a film director. He was the first black actor to win the Academy Award for Best Actor in 1964 for his role in Lilies of the Field. He received two Golden Globe Awards, a Grammy and a BAFTA Award, and was nominated for two Emmys and a Tony. He is dotingly known as the godfather to black Hollywood, and I can see why. Now, I'm coming at you with my guy, Spencer Williams. He was an actor and filmmaker. He was Andy on TV's The Amos and Andy Show. In 1941, he directed the race film The Blood of Jesus, which became the first race film to be included in the Library of Congress's National Film Registry in 1991. He also served in the U.S. Army during and after World War I. The man was a hero in many ways. Have you met Gail? Gail Fisher. She was an actress, and she was also one of the first actresses to play a non-stereotypical role in American TV. She was best known for her role as Peggy Fair on the hit 70s TV show Mannix. Gail was also the first black actress to appear on a TV commercial with a speaking role. All right now. It's, it's so strange to think that the things that I've mentioned so far, it really wasn't that long ago. Oh, did I forget to tell you that my girl won two Golden Globe Awards and an Emmy as well? Mm-hmm. Go ahead and get them, Gail. It made her the first black actress to win either of those awards in the supporting category. Can I get an amen? Yes. I have to shout out Madeline Anderson, a filmmaker, a producer for television and film, a director, a screenwriter, and editor. And if I'm being honest with you, she sounds like one of the first content creators. As a YouTuber and podcaster myself, that's exactly what I do all day, every day, and I am here for it. <laughs> so Madeline is best known for her films, Integration Report 1 in 1960 and 
I Am Somebody in 1970. She was inducted into the Black Filmmakers Hall of Fame in 1993. In 2015, the National Museum of African American History and Culture officially recognized her film, Integration Report 1, as the first documentary film to be directed by an African American woman. These are just a few of the many names in Black Hollywood history that have helped pave the way for all of us Black entertainers and now Black content creators. With the growth of technology and social media, we are now able to create and show our views, share our stories, our experiences, and inspire others. This podcast segment that you're listening to right now may have not been possible if not for all those who came before me. They crawled so that I could run. A lot of things in our world and society definitely needs to change and evolve, but I can't ignore all the good and growth that has happened. We still have a lot of work to do, but our past inspirers have lit a fire for our present inspirers to reach our future inspirers. We are out here, y'all, creative, strong, hardworking, inspirational, entertaining, and Black. I am able to chase my dreams in this field because of everyone before me. The history of Black Hollywood is a testament to the power of resilience, creativity, and the unbreakable spirit of a people determined to shine their light in a world that tried to keep them in the shadows. Happy Juneteenth to you all. Thank you so much to the Professionally Silly Podcast. Make sure that you check them out. She is hilarious. That show is like your favorite morning funny radio show. Next up, we have my favorite late night radio show. Humor and storytelling is one of the reasons why you're listening to podcasts to start off with. And that's why black comedy records would sell from stores in record time. I love a good laugh. I believe that a comedian has a very interesting duty in the black experience. A comedian's way of making us laugh while sneaking in the truth to their audience. Jokes on You podcast, hosted by comedians Tally and Mel Mitch, poke fun at the ups and downs in life. They thrive in their craft while always giving homage to the giant they stand on the shoulders of talking to us about the gifts of the storyteller jokes on you podcast hi i'm tally i'm mel we are from the jokes on you pod jokes on the, the joke because we don't have the intro the jokes on the joke jo- jo- ooh, ooh. we didn't agree on a note there i'm on i'm on key I don't think so. Okay, let's just Okay, we're just going to uh, go hey, ahead. Hi. Two female comedians. Two female comedians. First of all, thank you to Sister Two Kill for this I opportunity. Mean, we're so excited. Um, excellent podcast. If you haven't, if this is being released on our platform, which it is, go like, follow, and subscribe over there with Sister Two Kill because they yeah. are it. Um, I don't them know. Sisters are killing. Them si- <laughs> but um, tis. But yeah, um, we're coming to you. We're doing a special, special episode with them, um, and we're coming to you to talk about storytelling. Let's have a story, story about story. Story about story. We're going to talk about black women in storytelling and black women in comedy. Yes. So I'm really excited to get on that today. First of all, 
me and you had that little funny moment about uh, griots uh, before we got to yeah, rolling. So this heifer gonna ask me, oh, you know, I sent you what we gonna talk about. Do you know what a griot is? Bitch. I know you know what a griot is. Bitch, I, I went to an HBCU. I just wanted to check because I didn't want to get on here and then you be like, girl, what the fuck is a griot? Now we done used up all our 10, like 12 I'm minutes. Some, some damn uncultured ass I bitch. don't think you uncultured. Everybody just don't know everything. So I had to check. I know everything. You don't know everything. I mean, if I don't know the thing that's in the everything, I'm gonna ask. What's 92 times 75? I could probably figure that out, honestly. Go ahead. Just as I said. You shut your mother. <laughs> but anyway, no. Around uh, 7,300, though. Because if you just take out. That don't feel right. Bitch, fuck I need two times. What'd I say? 73? I can't even find my calculator out. You you overshot it. 92 but... times 75. Hmm, Not so bad. But anyway, I so, went that far, bitch. Mm, I said you overshot it, but it, you're close. I can do some arithmetic. I can't. I'm terrible at math. I'm actually pretty good at math. Not good at math. But I'm storytelling. Anyway, Story- so we're talking sorry. about storytelling. <laughs> Woo. Sorry, I'm not good with these short time constraints, but now we're going to talk about storytelling. First of all, me learning about griots is just so interesting because I didn't even realize it having a job as a storyteller in a community was actually a real thing that was, like, super yeah. revered. I think a lot of times people try to paint, especially women storytellers or women comedians, as, like, fucking clowns, and we got our big red noses on, and we fucking just out here shucking and jiving. But it's really not that. I think being able to tell stories and being able to tell jokes is an incredible responsibility. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's it's healing. It's healing. It's healing, and even, like, as you get older, you know when you finally get in grown folks' business? Mm-hmm. Like, and you have that one person in the family who knows everybody's business? They still agree with baby. I mean, like... yeah. It's, it's family history from word of mouth, and that was a way that before there was print, before there were actual mediums to learn information on, all we had was word of mouth, and I'm grateful for that. I mean, all we had was word of mouth, and I think that if we look at, like, our grandmamas and aunties and stuff that tell us the lore of the fucking family, yeah. I think that that kind of helps you understand that everything's going to be all right. Everything I learned about men, everything I learned about surviving relationships, everything I learned about our family and how to navigate through it. I learned from my Aunt Faye. Mm-hmm. I love her so much. Can I stand her offspring? We, we didn't or, to, or her grandchild. We didn't, have to, we didn't have to say that. We didn't have to say that. Anyway, but my Aunt Faye is just so funny because she tells us the stories that nobody else wants to tell. She gives us the information nobody else wants to give us. Mm-hmm. And you be out here and your female storytellers and your family know everything. You think you're struggling by yourself. Meanwhile, this happened to your Auntie uh, your auntie Dana 70 years ago and she shot that man. But you wouldn't know that if you didn't talk to Aunt Faye. So I think it's really interesting so to just storytelling. So I want to talk about the history of black women comedians. I want to give you space to talk about Moms Mabley because I think you're way more uh, knowledgeable on I her. I her. Um, she's off the top of the dome. She was born, first of all, in 1894. 1894. 1894. Now, the Griots is hundreds of thousands of years made? ago. Yeah, Griots 13th century. That's yeah, that's way back that's in right. West Africa, I mean, this way part, back. Before they came and got us. You know what? <laughs> but... <laughs> Mom's baby was born in 1894. 1894. And comedy has always been a boys' club. So she came Life was scene. a boys' club at that life, point. They wouldn't let bitches do nothing in, in, in 1894. Um, but she came through. She was one of the first to do it. Because, you know, comedy itself came from... This is so great, because I know this history, because when people ask me to come speak to kids for career day as mm-hmm. a comedian, I give them, like, the real history. And I try to... Mm-hmm. I don't water it down, but I try to, you know make it palatable for kids. Mm-hmm. We're just talking about, you know, we come from the minstrel shows mm-hmm. and the blackface and they're making fun of us. Mm-hmm. And it was like, hold on, there's a bag in this. I'm, I'm black. I can just do it. Right. And then that's how we get modern day stand-up comedy. And then Moms right. Mabley was like, I'm going to do it for the bitches. You I'm know what I'm saying? Right. And the whole Moms Mabley was a character. 
because she was big time lesbian. Mm-hmm. I mean, lesbian. Happy pride. Gay. Happy pride and this bitch. Um, but no, so it was a character she made that was kind of not so much mammy, but like an older woman and say she liked younger men. And she... And, like and I think OG. that representation is so important. I think yes. there's we talk about representation a lot as it relates to race, and I don't think we talk about representation as it relates to full identities. At that time, black queer women were not being represented in any way, and it almost takes a piece of your humanity to not see your, away from you to not see yourself in entertainment. Mm-hmm. So for Mom's able to be doing what she's doing, where if it was black people on stage or black people like building careers, it was black men. It was yeah. black men, and the only part of our identity that we could really connect with them is that we're both black, but the experiences are totally different. different. So for Moms Maybelline maybe to really open that door, I don't know. It One, it has done so much for us to be even able yeah. to sit here today, right. but it also like gave a chance for like women to see themselves, even if they couldn't totally like identify with the things that she was saying. Yeah, and talking she was talking about hating her husband. Everybody can relate to everybody that. Everybody hates their fucking husband. Everybody hates their husband. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, and I think that it opened... it. I think Moms Maybelline, and as we get to talking about other comedians, I think it just kind of opened the door for women to say things that they weren't supposed to say out loud. Exactly. Yeah, so that I think that's... That was a beautiful yeah. thing about it. But even in that, it was that that she could not, you know, she had to be that character because she couldn't be able to... Well, I ate the hell out of a coochie yesterday. And there would have been pitchforks and whatever. They would have burnt that lady up. Absolutely. Yeah, I think you got set on fire for being yeah, gay for, at that yeah, point. Yeah, at that point, yeah. you can't be talking about eating coochie. Yeah, you can't be talking about eating coochie. your suit down to the um, speakeasy. You put a fucking skirt on and act right. You get up there. You that But no. Um, but it's, it's beautiful. And I'm just so grateful for her sacrifice and her brilliance and her jokes. Uh, one of her jokes I remember hearing is funny and that people are still using to this day is that uh, only thing an old man to do is... is it, it, no, if you see me with an older man... I'm holding him for the police or something like that. <laughs> it came nothing to old man. Didn't they make a joke about to a younger one. Robert De Niro and black women? That's what yeah, I'm that They're joke. Still yeah, using yeah, that joke that, to yeah. this day. Um, brilliant. I think that Moms Maybelline also opened up something. It kind of gave women the courage to be funny with one another. Um, I like to think that because women weren't on stage for a long time, there were so many other avenues where you could really get your jokes off and your funny off and it'd be a safe space. Women were telling jokes in hair salons with one another. Some of the funniest people that you ever meet down to the salon, sewing circles, cutting up, all those things, over the fence, washing clothes, cooking. Because all we had to do was domestic shit. Or maybe the salon, and we just had to make them spaces safe mm-hmm. for ourselves. Yep. And because the niggas getting out to have fun and freedom riding and all the whatever the fuck. Mm-hmm. And we at the house with them goddamn kids, so we had to find something. To oh, do. I'm so glad I'm not in that number. Ooh, shit. I'm so glad I would. They would have talked about me so bad back in the day. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, I'm not. Mm-mm. We already talked about it once. We can talk about washing garbage man clothes no more. Yeah, we're not doing that. But no, who is the funniest black woman you know, comedic or not, comedy or not, or both? Give me a comedian and give me the funniest. Not a lot of pressure, and I really don't fucking know. Um, you want me to go first? Yeah, go first. The funniest black woman I know that's not a comedian is two. They're tied. I already talked about my Aunt Faye, but my Auntie Diana is the, one of the funniest people I've ever met in my entire life, and they're sisters, and they came right behind each other. Mm. I don't know what it was like, that dynamic with them growing up in the house, because they'd be, be cutting up, and they don't even cut up together, but they cut up in the same way with the same gossip. So some gossip will come through the family. I need both points of view from <laughs> both of these people. My aunt, I do her voice on stage. Uh, she has a way of saying things that she doesn't think she's being funny, but she is being funny. That's the one that was like, yeah, last man, before I came out. She's like, yeah, last man, ain't you? Yeah, never here with no nigga at Christmas, never, not one, never seen one. 
you gay, you just need to say it because we're saying it behind your back. Like, that's some of the... But that's like the perfect... Did she smoke cigarettes? No, she doesn't. At least not anymore. If she did, it was when she was younger. But... A good cigarette voice, I love that. uh, Yeah, I I just... I love both of them very much. Uh, My Auntie Diana is the type of person that will insult you and then come right back up with something funny or, like like nice Mm -hmm. like one time she called me a hoe and then somehow managed to say I was a hoe but I had my shit together and she said it in front of people I got ate up so fast didn't even realize that I had got ate up till I already I had gotten home she was talking about me and my cousin she was calling everybody hoes (laughs) everybody's a hoe she's like but you might be a hoe but you went and got that degree Mm mm-hmm and And you always got you somewhere to live (laughs) I was like thank you I guess. That is fair. Yeah. Uh, I actually need to go visit both of them. My favorite comedian, uh, the funniest woman in comedy to me, and this is the span of her career for me, is Monique. Absolutely. I might not agree with how she behaves sometimes. I was thinking it would have to be Monique. Monique is one of the funniest and talented. She's quite a talented actress. She is one of the funniest, most well-rounded comedians that I I think that has come through the game. You know who my answer is as far as comedians? Who? Wanda Sykes. Wanda Sykes is hilarious, and I always I don't forget about her, but I don't bring Wanda, her up in conversations Wanda be like chilling, and she got her white lady. But <laughs> Wanda Sykes is so fucking funny. Like just thinking about Biggie Shorty, um, her character and Monster in Law. You say Two Wong Fu is your favorite movie, but I think it's Pootie Tang. Yeah, I mean I have a lot of favorite movies. Uh-huh. But same way I have a lot of favorite colors. Mm-hmm. But Pootie Tang is one of like when I watched this movie at like seven years old, I was like, this. You shouldn't have been seeing it at seven. This years old. is cinema. Mm-hmm. Most of the things I should not have been watching, I watched with my father. Mm. Father's in the home. Like, this is why I'm so inappropriate. But, oh, why do you act like this? I, y'all want me to have a daddy? I had one. <laughs> I'm, I'm being raised by the daddy. He's showing me all the shit I should be That's watching. That's so funny. We need to talk about that, because I have a joke about that, too. We'll do it on the ex- next episode. Um, but, um, but, yeah, and funniest woman, just period. I feel like my entire family is just a clown car. Like, <laughs> my mom is the only sane person and quiet person in my family. Everyone else is just... Chaos. Is it your aunt that's the funniest one you know? She's the hilarious. One oh, oh my God. Oh, she's so funny. Oh, my cousin Rhonda? Yes. Cousin, yes. She's a cousin auntie because she's my dad's cousin. So she's really like my auntie. Mm-hmm. She's a nut. I, that's my Like, letter. Christmas is like, everybody just gathers around like she's a griot and she just says the most outrageous shit that you've ever heard in your life. And it's amazing. But for me, witnessing that in somebody else's family, because obviously the family that I have access to is my own, and usually when I meet other people's families, it's like a romantic thing, so I'm trying to act right. But that was the first time in a while that I had been to another family's Christmas that wasn't mine or romantic. It was like staring through the looking glass and like seeing a little bit of myself. the same. Yeah, well, seeing my future in a couple of years. Just like her just saying the things that she was saying on the phone, I ain't gonna say her business, but saying things she was saying on the phone, the points she was making about men. I'm just like... Between them. Like, this is gonna be me. She has a I think she's hilarious. Every Christmas. You should have and a new nigga is, every and Christmas. And that is, every time I see her, she has a new nigga, and she's like 65. That's what the fuck I'm talking about, bitch. She might be 67, low key. Because I think she was older than my dad. Have you a new nigga? And I think that's important. We have these black women in our lives to show if one nigga fuck up, get another If one nigga, nigga don't work, up, get, get another, another one. <laughs> and if that nigga don't work, get two, two of niggas. them. Yeah, no, definitely. Monique, there we go. Yep. But yeah, it's definitely Monique, definitely Wanda. But those, honestly, those women raised me in mm-hmm. comedy, now that I think about it. I think we kind of answered this, and we can wrap up soon. Um, I know that we talked about the funniest black, you know, female comedians that we personally know. We didn't talk about Queens of Comedy. Oh, we didn't talk about Queens of Comedy. Queens of Comedy shifted me. You know how they say, like, something changes the trajectory of your life? Literally. I know I get a lot of my inspiration from Cat Williams, and I I model a lot of the kind of, like, way that I move and talk on stage behind, like, male comedians, but a lot of... And I kind of, like, kick myself, because I'm like, I'm a lot of Kevin Hart. It doesn't bother me. Like, Kevin Hart low-key is, like... 
Mother. I he is mother, mothering. Uh in ways for me, especially my speech pattern. Same. But how I model my content and the things that I'm not afraid to talk about all come from the queens of comedy. I, I got a little piece of everybody. Everything they said on stage, I knew I wasn't supposed to be saying. But I was like, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to say this stuff, too. And it might not have been comedy, because I didn't want to be a comedian as a little girl. Right. But it made me comfortable to say things out loud. When Samora got her fine ass on that fucking stage, I said, that's a bad bitch. That lady is stacked up like dishes. And she still is. Yes. Still. Yes. So I get the bad bitch. I'm going to get up there and talk about dick if I feel like it, bitch. Mm -hmm. I get that from Samora. You know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? I'm going to tell a crazy story about me and my sisters like Miss Laura. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say some outrageous, ridiculous shit and say I'm a fucking lady like Adele. And I'm just be Monique is just mother. M- Monique for me, mother. because I knew looking at my family, I was, first of all, and I hate to like always bring back the side, I knew I was not going to be a small girl. All I had heard is like, big bitches didn't get niggas and you should just be happy somebody looking at you. And, and Monique, said, and Monique said, I can't keep my drawers on because these niggas beating down my motherfucking door. And I said, you know what? Per, I don't care if I grow up to be 895 pounds. That is my attitude moving forward, and I love that. I love, I don't like on how the Parkers, like how she was so obsessed with Professor Ogilvy. I, I didn't like that ended either. Up with him instead of Mel Jackson. Oh my God. I will Dude, never I forgive the writers of that show. Mel Jackson. Mel Jackson, when the Not devil this. made that light skinned man, he broke the mold. That is one of the, that's, this Alan Payne, Mel Jackson. What's the other one? What's the other fine light skin man? We we need to wrap up. Shamar, uh, we Bumper, what's his name? Huh? Bumper, what's his Bumper, name? Bumper, uh, Johnson. Mm, 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 mm. The was... granddaddy from Twitches? Which one is that? Oh, no, not Twitches. Not 17 Twitches. Again. 17, 17 again. again. Yep. Ooh, Mark, we get um... we, we off topic. Anyway. <laughs> um, now, there's no physical evidence to this, but I feel like old Mr. from Color Purple wasn't nothing to play with back in the day. I wholeheartedly agree, and I've had some dreams. No, miss, you let that girl sit at your table. <laughs> what well, can I sit at your table, old mister? Anyway, let's anyway, get off topic. So, but no, uh, we just want to pay homage to all of the wonderful storytellers that Absolutely. came before us. That yes. whether they're superstars or whether they're sitting in the kitchen talking shit, uh, we are just so grateful for everybody that came. Oh, yes. Actually, my grandmother is one of the best shit talkers I ever knew. God rest her soul. Mm. Rose. You raised me. This is mm. why I will never stop cussing. I Shout love you, Gigi. My, yeah, 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 yeah. Grandma's my great grandma. Oh, no, nope. you. They can't see you. Go ahead and cry. <laughs> I miss my grandma, man. I miss my grandma, too. My, my grandma, Dolly Tate, she used to take me when she used to throw papers in Detroit. Baby, she would just say some of the... She taught me how to cuss, first of all. Like, I if you too. was a kid and you was cussing, you wouldn't get in trouble, but your cuss words need to go together because she gonna fix your phonetics. Yeah. She gonna fix your grammar yeah. and your sentence structure. She used, I feel like I cuss better than my sisters. You do. I've heard Monique curse maybe once, and That's I was right. like... I, she be cussing, I'm like, nah, you ain't... You gotta... You gotta get in there. Push that shit out. Push that shit out. <laughs> but no, she used to drive around the city. I distinctly remember one time she almost uh, hit somebody with their her car because they were crossing the street illegally. And she yelled at the window. She said, I'll take the paint off that ass with this Beretta. I said, you're 800 years old. Why are you talking like this? Yeah, but you, it's, it's an art that black women have mastered of cussing and, I just, mm, and creativity. Kiss. But mm. black women... Yes, black women storytellers. Thank you so much. That's all we got. That's all right. Bye. Bye. I think that some of the funniest people are the best storytellers. They are those people that you want in your family to soak up all the family history from, to soak up all the the tall tales from everybody from. They're so important. 
and I think they're overlooked another position where people are seen as like loud and obnoxious and she always got something to say but those are the people that you're listening to those are the people that these stories are coming from and throughout history especially our history telling these stories orally is so ingrained in who we are ingrained in our DNA. And another thing that I think is ingrained in us and ingrained in our DNA and just being a black person is the way that we are dressed, our fashion. And our fashion tells a lot about us and who we are, where we come from, what we stand for, and how we move as a community. Black Fashion History is a fashion podcast hosted by Tanika Russ, celebrating the past and present contributions of black people around the world to the luxury fashion industry. My favorite. (laughs) It explores the life, work, and industry experience of black designers, educators, curators, costumers, stylists, and more. It's black history, but make it fashion. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Black Fashion History Podcast, your favorite podcast that teaches you everything you need to know about the contributions of Black people worldwide to the fashion industry. We like to say that it's Black history, but make it fashion. And I am your host, Taniqua Martin. I've got a history snippet for you all today. I'm going to be talking about the history of fashion shows in the Black community, mainly focusing on the Black community in the United States. And I'm so excited to share all this information with you. So now let's get into it. Fashion shows have been a staple in the Black communities in America for decades as long as I know that I can remember Um, I can think about growing up and going to church fashion shows think about charity fashion shows and we use them to accomplish so many things Um, charities like I say raising money for churches or showcasing the talent of churches just having a creative space Um, we also use it to promote community causes highlight local talent and you know also just as an occasion to stunt so fashion and fashion shows are no stranger to the black community. Black communities around the world use fashion shows as a way of expression, cultural celebration, and sometimes a vehicle for justice. And it's not a surprise that fashion shows would be a popular thing in our community because fashion is so interwoven within black communities for, again, decades. I would even say not even decades, centuries from the beginning of time. Um, Being a seamstress was a very common skill among Black women in the early 20th centuries. Many Black mothers chose to make clothes for themselves and their family because it was more fiscally accessible at the time. They didn't have to go out and buy things. They had materials and the skills, and they passed those skills down on to their children. And then you had the emergence of um, Black designers where they're not just seamstresses um, who made clothes, but they made clothes with the intent of having a creative outlet, as well as a practical intent of providing clothing for themselves and for their community. Many Black designers, starting from the early 20th century, chose to make clothes that were sold to Black customers in Black communities um, for the simple fact, again, of just living in these communities with each other, accessibility, and and designing being having a cultural root. In the 1920s, Black families started to experience an interesting wave of opportunity. So many Black families from the South would move up North um, in pursuit of a higher standard of living, less discrimination, of course, um, personal autonomy, and then just so much more freedom. 
this resulted in a boom of black businesses um, and like thriving black communities. So now we have black families with more disposable income. Not all of them. Again, not everyone at the time experiences, but we do have a subset of the black population that now have more disposable income. Um, this is around the same time as um, Madam C.J. Walker and her business booming. Um, also, at the same time, you had black newspapers and other black media outlets that were booming and helping to promote the businesses in the black communities. So, of course, with more disposable income comes with uh, more desires to buy things, and that includes clothing and accessories. As you can imagine, even though there's now the subset of the Black population that has more money to spend on things, um, it was not always a welcoming place for them. Department stores, boutiques, and fashion houses just weren't um, busting at the seams to allow Black people to come in and you know participate in fashion in that way. This was also an interesting time for the fashion industry as a whole because by the 1920s, the American fashion scene had sort of developed um, its own way of doing fashion shows. So fashion shows were a concept that began in France and then became popular in the U.S., Um, in the early 20th century. And then they originally started as kind of exclusive by invitation only events and kind of morphed into more of an extravaganza in the United States. So this included performances, dancing, music, kind of theater. And so the American way of doing fashion show was this full-on production and that became um, solidified by the 1920s. So, of course, black people were excluded from this mainstream fashion space, but um, black communities, again, having fashion as a mainstay and something that has been woven into our community for centuries, obviously wanted to participate uh, in fashion in the way that everyone else is participating in fashion. So with their newfound socioeconomic status and many of these new businesses being in the fashion and beauty realm also, um, black women uh really took this as an opportunity to merge all of this. A lot of them were getting involved in um, community organizing as well. And fashion shows became a way for them to raise funds, support organizations, and bring awareness to the community about different causes, um, as well as enjoy fashion and the work of the community. In the 1920s, there was a very popular Black American actor, playwright, and show producer by the name of Irvin Colladin Miller. And I'm just going to say Irvin C. Miller because I do not know how to say the middle name correctly, or I don't know if I'm saying his middle name correctly. But remember, I told you that early American fashion shows were an extravaganza that focused on music, theater, and dance. So it was more like a play or show production. However, in 1925, Irvin C. Miller produced um, this annual show that he started taking on the road across the country called Brown Skin Models. It was very popular, and the whole purpose was to glorify attractive black women um, and celebrate them. Now, this show included songs, dancing, comedy, like many of his other shows, um, but the focus on the show were on the models themselves who did not do the singing or the dancing or the comedy they just walked around these beautiful black women just walked around in clothing so what we know to be a modeling today and you know what we recognize as fashion as a fashion show today now the concept of a model already existed you know someone who showcased 
fashion. Um, this is kind of how fashion shows got started. People, boutiques would have live models to showcase the clothing. So that wasn't novel, but the concept of like fashion walking, meaning the models whose skills in these shows wasn't to do any sort of entertainment, but solely to show off the clothing in a show setting, um, became popularized because of this brown skin models review. And that term was called fashion walking. Of course, this increase in popularity among black communities because that was his main audience. And, you know, these concepts of models just donning clothing um, and walking around posing was incorporated into the fashion shows at the time and made fashion shows even more popular in black communities. Um, and many women leaned on them even more as a source of fundraising for the community work that they were doing. The 1920s was also the era of the Harlem Renaissance, which we all know and love. It was the time where it was just a massive celebration of Black art and culture and artistry in all its forms. And that also included fashion shows. Actually, Harlem started becoming synonymous with fashion shows at this time. Like these became a very regular occurrence when Harlem was booming and this lasted from the 20s all the way up into the 60s to the point where they were having hundreds of fashion shows every year in Harlem like Harlem became I would say the black fashion capital now these shows were usually put on in churches and we know that the black church is a mainstay in the community because we use it for so much more than um, Sunday worship many of our civil rights leader organized and planned um, their movements in churches. We did meetings in churches, fashion shows and fundraising happened in churches. So um, again, the black church was a staple in the black community at this time. So of course, many fashion shows happened in there because it was a safe space for black people to gather and support the works and artistry of each other. Over the years, Fashion shows in Black communities moved from being these localized, community-organized events that kind of happened in silos, like I said, the Harlem fashion shows that were really popular in the Harlem communities, and into these national events that traveled from state to state across America. Um, and that kind of moved the work of fashion shows from being just showcasing local designers into introducing new markets to new designers and kind of help build um, the concept of the Black fashion designer and national popularity. A great example of this is the Ebony Fashion Fair fashion shows. And if you want to know more about the national impact of fashion shows in Black communities, then you definitely want to check out my podcast, Black Fashion History, available on all podcasting platforms. And of course, happy Juneteenth. I still love fashion shows. And I think one of the most interesting things was the talk about community, the talk about us constantly working together and the journey for self-expression and learning how to live and love and be themselves. A place where people could gather and talk and debate and have a good time and say yes or no. Our next podcast takes all types of hot topics and interest of Black folks, and they view it through the lens of academic scholarship and colorful insight. This next podcast, you guys, we have two, count them, two PhD candidates in the house. 
Talking, exploring, learning, and unlearning, this is Zora's Daughters. Hey y'all, I'm Brendan. And I'm Melissa. We're cultural anthropologists and co-hosts of the Black Feminist Podcast, Zora's Daughters. In every episode, we take a close look at popular culture and some of the things we encounter in our everyday lives, modeling how thinking like a Black feminist anthropologist can contribute to understanding and changing the world around us. And so one of the questions that we asked on a recent episode is, will the real Black feminist please stand up? Stand where, up. Y'all, where y'all at? Yep. Um, <laughs> and we asked this because people will call themselves Black feminists, but actually haven't done any of the homework, haven't done none of the reading. So they don't actually hold any Black feminist principles. And if you don't do the reading, you can't understand the assignment. Mm-mm, mm-mm. Another reason we wanted to talk about this is because people often ask us, what can theory or even these labels like Black feminist do for me? And that's a valid question. A lot of academics are sitting up there in their ivory towers, making shit up about marginalized people instead of being grounded in those communities and their needs. And so to counteract that, today we are going to take y'all back to Boston, Massachusetts, to April 1977, to the release of the Combahee River Collective Statement. And I know some of you are thinking, hmm, something good came from Boston? And it's like, huh, who knew, right? But if y'all didn't know, right, the Combahee River Collective was a group of radical Black feminist lesbians whose teachings greatly influence how we do radical Black feminist politics today. They named themselves after the Combahee River Raid that Harriet Tubman coordinated in South Carolina. These radical Black feminist lesbians were Barbara Smith, Beverly Smith, Demita Frazier, Akasha Hull, Margot Okazawa Ray, Charlene McCray, and Audre Lorde. And the Combahee River Collective convened from 1974 to 1980. So I feel like people can wrap their head around Black feminism and what that means. But what do we mean by radical? Y'all, this is not the radical or extreme left that Ron DeSantis and Fox News be talking about, okay? Mm -mm. Radical in this context means neither right nor left, but operating outside the boundaries of existing political structures. Right. And I really think it's important for us to hear how these Black women defined themselves. So I'll read directly, quote, We are a collective of Black feminists who have been meeting together since 1974. And during that time, we have been involved in the process of defining and clarifying our politics, while at the same time doing political work within our group and in coalition with other progressive organizations and movements. The most general statement of our politics at the present time would be that we are actively committed to struggling against racial, sexual, heterosexual, and class oppression, and see as our particular task the development of integrated analysis and practice based upon the fact that the major systems of oppression are interlocking. The synthesis of these oppressions creates the conditions of our lives. As Black women, we see Black feminism as the logical political movement to combat the manifold and simultaneous oppressions that all women of color face. The Combahee River Collective's politics, quote, sprang from the shared belief that Black women are inherently valuable, 
that our liberation is a necessity not as an adjunct to someone else's, but because of our need as human persons for autonomy, end quote. They deeply understood that there would be no Black liberation without Black women, something that was not, and still is not, clicking for political movements. I was not clicking. Was not... Mm, click, click, click. <laughs> we still have to create separate movements for Black women because people don't see our freedom as necessary. And the Kambahi River Collective talked about this at length. They wrote that feminism is threatening to Black people because it calls into question the assumptions that structure are living in this world. The main one being, right, that there is an inherent difference in sex, and that difference means that cisgender men should have more power. If you read this, right, you would think, wait, didn't they just write this, like, yesterday? Given how it's still, it's still hitting, Right. The same logic still applies to our movements today. Like, look at the Black Lives Matter movement. They had to create Say Her Name because people acted like Black men were the only victims of racial violence. And the Kambahi River Collective talks about how Black women not only experience erasure in our own movements, right, the movements for Black people, but in women's movements as well. And it's this fact that led them to theorize intersectionality. They were among the first Black feminists to write about interlocking oppressions and their harmful impacts on Black women. They wrote, quote, the major source of difficulty in our political work is that we are not just trying to fight oppression on one front or even two, but instead to address a whole range of oppressions. We do not have racial, sexual, heterosexual, or class privilege to rely upon nor do we even have the minimal access to resources and power that groups who possess any one of these types of privilege have. And y'all, I'm smirking a little bit while I'm reading this because <laughs> Charlene, Charlene said, nah, never mind. Not me. Uh, Charlene. Just, just look her up. Just look, look her up, up, man. And you'll see exactly <laughs> what we mean. They did say their politics at the time. Um, at the time. <laughs> But because Black women, right, face a whole range of oppressions, it's important to center us and Black girls, both cis and trans, in our movements. And when we center those who are the most marginalized, we make liberation possible for everyone. But trust us, right, that shit is not easy. Um, liberation work is hard. And the Kambahi River Collective knew this. They struggled greatly with each other and with other coalitions in their meetings. And so they end the statement with a reminder that is for all of us, quote, as Black feminists and lesbians, we know that we have a very definite revolutionary task to perform, and we are ready for the lifetime of work and struggle before us. These principles shape our politics and our praxis. That is how we put our words and beliefs into action and the way we approach cultural criticism on the podcast. We believe that none of us are free until the least of us are free. And using that as a way to look at the world helps us identify the patterns of injustice wherever they exist. So where are we now? Right? How do these politics influence how we think about Black liberation today? And the answer is in the world we want to build after all of this shit is burned down. Mm -hmm. They said a revolution. They said a revolution. They didn't say a reform. <laughs> that was what will free us, right? But when we try to do things the same way, we reproduce the same inequality and the same injustice of our oppressors. So on Juneteenth, 
while we're thinking about building Black futures, we must think about communities founded on the principles of care, community, accountability, and reciprocity. I think a lot of people hope for those principles to be met by the state. They want the government to take care of them in that way. They want them to care. They want them to be accountable. They want to have a relationship of reciprocity. It sounds nice, but it's unrealistic. Using theory to go back to our original question that we've been asked, we can begin letting go of that expectation that we can and should rely on the state to give us what we need and start giving each other what we need. And while this work is never easy, it's necessary. The world as we knew it will never be again. A world where Black people are free won't just happen, though. Like, Lord, don't I wish I could just wake up and be like, oh, what? Freedom. <laughs> um, <laughs> but as Asada Shakir says, right, we have a duty to fight for our freedom. And we have a duty to win. So we ask you, are you ready to work for your liberation? And no. Not in the Black capitalist sense, right? We're not telling you to go get an LLC and put your car <laughs> underneath it, right? <laughs> we actually are asking you to get involved with organizations who are fighting to end oppression because nothing less than that will free us. Brendan with the mic drop as always. <laughs> well, that's all we have for you today. Thank you all for listening. If you liked what you heard, please check out our podcast, Zora's Daughters. We're anti-capitalists. We don't do ads. So you can just listen right through mm -hmm. where we speak to questions like, what is cultural appropriation? Should Black people really get 40 acres? Can biracial women with white moms inherit Black feminist traditions vis-a-vis -vis Black maternal genealogies? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Learn and unlearn about these and other hot topics with us through the lens of academic scholarship and colorful insight. You can find our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please follow us on Instagram at Zora's Daughters and Twitter at Zora's underscore daughters. And last but not least, remember, we must take care of ourselves and each other. Bye. Bye. The desire the need for your words to be heard, for your voice to have meaning. Those things are so important. So many times we're screaming out, reaching out for somebody to hear us, to set us free. Something that we have had to do ourselves. And on that journey, we have seen that many, most, don't respect our journey to get free. Our next story is about a woman who used her voice, used it proudly, and was punished severely for it. This is Black True Crime. Hello, everyone. Hello, everybody. I'm Kayla. And I'm Kristen. And this is Black True Crime. If this is your first time here at the show, friend, welcome and hello. Hi. <laughs> the point of our show is to basically talk about cases that a lot of people haven't heard of within our community. They haven't really made the forefront of the media or a lot of other podcasts. So we like to take the time out of our day to make sure they get the attention that they deserve. And um, yeah, <laughs> we try to do it as respectfully as possible, although we do have a good time. So we do have a cute little key every now and then. But yeah. we try to keep it very respectful and yeah. Today we're doing a very special episode in celebration of Juneteenth, and we are collabing with Sisters Who Kill, which is dope. We're hey excited about it. <laughs> so, Kristen, what do you have for us to get us started today? Okay, so 
I just wanted to drop a little tidbits for you. Did you guys even know that as recently as 2020, a fourth grade social studies textbook in Connecticut had the nerve to claim slaves were treated just like family? The audacity. Girl, bye. A Texas geography book referred to enslaved Africans as workers. Mm. And up until the 1970s, fourth graders in Alabama learned from a textbook called No Alabama that slave life on a plantation was one of the happiest ways of life. And that last part is a quote. Quote, one of the happiest ways of life is slavery. Bubkiss. Wow. Now, considering President Biden made it a federal holiday only two years ago, some of us are still wondering, what the heck is Juneteenth again? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, Juneteenth is a commemoration of the end of slavery in the U.S. On June 19th in 1865, a Union General, Gordon Granger, arrived in Galveston, Texas. Now, Texas is a Confederate state at the time. So he arrived with his troops to inform and, in a sense, enforce enslaved black people Mm. be free Mm. and that the Civil War had ended two months prior. This day is so important because President Abraham Lincoln had already signed the Emancipation Proclamation two full years earlier in 1863. Basically, that said that, hey, all of the Confederate mm-hmm. um, states, you know, henceforth, all y'all slaves need to be free. Right. Period. But slave owners in those states, cough, cough, Texas, <laughs> was not trying to hear that. And with little to no enforcement of the emancipation, it really wasn't giving what it was supposed to give. Right. Mm -hmm. Juneteenth was a huge deal, but we all know that the fight for freedom did not end there by any means. Mm -mm. Follow us to Oklahoma in 1921, where white people looted and destroyed Tulsa's Greenwood District, which was known for its affluent black community. Mm -hmm. Um, Historians believe as many as 300 black folks were killed during this massacre. Unfucking believe this was in 1921. Yeah, literally was just 102 years ago, mm-hmm. and they and just slaughtered people because they felt like literally it. deemed the Tulsa massacre. Wow, now fucking believable. But, but get this: mm. Trump had the nerve to try to host a rally on Juneteenth in Tulsa, <laughs> and so an amazing woman named Sherry Smith protested it very boldly mm-hmm. and very loud about how this should not. And could not go Mm. down. Well, Sherry Smith was later found murdered. Oh, sister. Yeah. So why don't you take over with the murder portion? Okay. I know I sound surprised, but (laughs) (laughs) we did do this research and I fully am well aware of what happens. But it still makes me sad because damn, you know, and Sherry was actually referred to as Miss Juneteenth. For how hard she was working toward keeping Juneteenth respectable when a certain president was trying to play in our face. Mm -hmm. So Sherry Gamble Smith was president of the Black Wall Street Chamber of Commerce. Wow. Didn't even know that was a thing. And it was named after Tulsa's Greenwood Commercial District, which, as we know, Tulsa was Black Wall Street. It was the epitome of black wealth and white people at the time were so threatened by it and they were just sick and crying to their mommies that they decided to destroy it wow so yeah sherry was very passionate about black people our rights the things that we lost the things that we deserve all that type of stuff so she was dope she was vocal in her opposition to trump and his plans to host the rally she said quote to choose the date to come to Tulsa is totally disrespectful and a slap in the face to even happen, end quote. 
So I don't know if it was Sherry that did it, but Trump did end up postponing his rally for at least a day. Girl, I'll be surprised if Trump even knew what happened on <laughs> Juneteenth in Tulsa. This man, he really did post, he did make a thing. He was like, I popularized Juneteenth. I made Juneteenth known by everyone. Nobody knows what happened on Juneteenth, but I'm the one that made sure they knew. Okay. I'm like, sir, you made sure they knew by making a mockery out of it, by bringing your little ass down to Tulsa on a day you shouldn't have. Right. Plus get, stop play. Just to get turned around. <laughs> anyway. Or at least pushed back. So, yeah, shout out to Miss Sherry for speaking up because I'm sure speaking up against the president isn't the easiest thing to do, especially, honestly, it doesn't matter what fucking year it is. Mm -hmm. um, so she had the goal. She had the balls. And we love her for it. Shout out Miss Juneteenth. Shout now, out. how did she pass? So here we go. Police dispatched on a call about a reported death around 8 a.m. on Wednesday, July 6, 2022. So when they got to the Smith home, they found Sherry Gamble Smith dead and her husband, Martin Smith, wounded. Mm. Martin would later die at the hospital. Wow. So we have two deceased people, unfortunately. And according to evidence and in interviews, apparently her husband killed her. Oh, yeah, Martin. So the two had apparently been going through some domestic issues and it had been going on for a while. And several days leading up to the murders is when it really started to rear its ugly head and got bad. Okay. Footage shows Martin Smith spending most of the night before the murder sitting alone in his garage. Shortly before the murder, evidence shows Martin Smith removing a pistol from the garage and placing it in his waistband as he Ooh. entered the home. Yeah. Okay, so was he contemplating murder Had in to that happen. garage? Probably saying his last goodbyes because he shoots himself as well. Oh, spoiler alert. <laughs> spoiler alert, he shoots himself. As we know, he was already injured and then he ends up dying. But when he went inside, he called an out-of-state family member prior to murdering Sherry. And then he turned the gun on himself. Wow. Yep. And he would later, like I said, pass at Tulsa Hospital. So, unfortunately, she didn't die protecting her country. I mean, not to say unfortunately, but I'm sure she would have preferred to have lost her life in a more um, honorable way. Not just honorable, but like consenting way. Yeah. You know, some people like people that are in the military, like they know what they're signing up for. They understand the risks and stuff. So, you know, but in this situation, he took her life solely based on domestic violence shit i don't even know what his issue was for real maybe he was jealous maybe there was some affair going on who fucking knows either way he shouldn't have took her life yeah and um sherry had more work to do right sherry was doing things martin she was on the ground running and we need her so rest in peace to sherry rest in peace to sherry smith we need more sherry's in the world yes. and i think this just reminds us how important it is that we remember our history and fight those who want to erase it so today we honor the sacrifices made for us to be where we are today shout out to sherry and acknowledge the work that still needs to be done amen sister so happy juneteenth to everyone if you guys are interested in listening to any of our episodes that we release every Thursday, you can Google Black True Crime Podcast and follow us on Instagram at Black True Crime Podcast. 
thanks sisters who kill for inviting us of course we hope you guys are having a really good time listening to this full length episode and yeah enjoy enjoy happy juneteenth oh and before we go like always be, be safe, safe protect, protect your peace and, and protect, protect your space, space. So, so we don't have to cover your case, case friend period bye. bye and here we are today Thank you so much to all of the podcasters that participated with us. I think that it is so important. And like we said, we have a duty. We have a duty as black podcasters to tell our stories and to tell them from our perspective. Absolutely. I do want to take a moment to thank every single podcast that agreed to work with us on this project. We are so happy to have you. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And happy Juneteenth. White people do if something you, nice for a black person today. And if you guys look into your show notes, there are links to every podcast, no matter what feed you are listening to this on, no matter where you are, no matter whose feed you are on, you can go and find your new favorite podcast, learn your history so that you can tell your history and we can continue on our fight to get free. 